If you're looking for the frozen yogurt place, it's across the alley. And no, I can't give you any samples. That's my personal yogurt. No, no. You're a travel agency, right? Yeah, you're here to make fun of me? You're here to put down a quaint way of doing things from the past like the rest of you millennial punks? I'm a 53-year-old man. I'm looking to book a vacation. With a travel agent? Yeah, I, I just got a divorce and I'm just, you know, I'm looking to cheer myself up. Why don't you just use the internet? She got half the Wi-Fi password in the divorce. Oh, okay. Well, uh, welcome. Let me just, uh, oh, go on, open the blinds, have a seat, get comfortable. Let me just dust off the old Rand McNally. <sighs> okay, so are you looking to travel in one of the 48 states or, oh, there's a South America now. That sounds fun. But where do you want to go? A- anywhere, really. Somewhere far away from LA where I don't, where I don't have these painful memories, you know? I know just the place. Picture this. Clear blue skies. Friendly open-air cottages dot the hillside. Charming boutique stores selling anything you'd ever need to relax. A lazy river runs straight through the town. A refreshing breeze around every corner. Quiet evenings. Miles away from who you were, right next door to the man you're about to become. Palm trees carry the sound of the ocean waves right to your doorstep. Knock, knock. Who's there? Open the door and find out. It's me! I want to go! I want to go to Kokomo! Kokomo? No. Sorry, my iPod keeps playing on its own. It's Burbank. Burbank? Is that a little Spanish town in the Bahamas? No, Burbank, California, next to Sun Valley. We'll fly you out of LAX. We're gonna fly there? Well, it's the most direct route. I'm gonna spend all the money from my separation on a trip to Burbank? When was the last time you've been to Burbank? They have a Fuddruckers now. Well, I've never been to a Fuddruckers before. Maybe this is what I need right now. Get a, get a bison burger? I've never done that. At least it's a nonstop flight. Well, there's actually eight legs to it. There's eight layovers to Burbank? I promise you, it's one of the top five most direct routes you're going to find there. Well, you know, it is a nice place. I've never done anything like this before. Sorry. You know what? Yeah, let's do it. I'm ready now. You're not going to regret this. All right, I'm going to need a personal check for $60,000. $60,000? Well, that's my cut. And then another 40000 to ensure that you get the seat of your choice, which I assume middle? Because that's all there is. I'm not paying $100,000 for a trip from LAX to Burbank with eight stops. You can buy a snack. No! Please, I need this money. My family's starving. I haven't booked a trip in years. My kids would finally be able to go to school with this money. That's all they've ever wanted. Look, I know it's crazy. You don't have to go on the trip. Just give me the money. No, this is highway robbery. I'm going to look on the internet. I have to reconcile with my wife to get the second half of my password back now. Good day. No. Oh, no. This was my big chance. This was what I was waiting for. And I screwed it up just like I screw up every good thing that ever came my way. My marriage, my family. I let myself down and I let them down. I'm like, going to look them in the eyes. Sarah's going to have to take on another shift. Robert's going to have to get a job. 15 years old and he's got to support his loser dad. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? <laughs> what am I going to do? Aruba, Jamaica. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? <laughs>
dos, tres, cuatro. Hi, I'm speaking Spanish now because I'm taking a conversational Spanish instructional CD <laughs> on my long drives. And I listen to La Bamba <laughs> <laughs> on my long drive. Hola, bienvenido. Uh, encantado. For our English speakers, <laughs> let's put it in terms they can understand. Howdy, get her done. <laughs> Don't cut in line. That's how we say hello in uh, <laughs> that, Riverside. <laughs> it's a Riverside hello. That's a that's a Mississippi how you doing. <laughs> Well, this is Daniel, the uh, the king of the mambo beat. <laughs> I am Greg. I'm also a thing. This has gone on way too long. Yeah, now. this is dumb. Let's focus. I'm glad here. that we're both scratching our eyes well, at the you, same time. Well, you were scratching your eye, and then something I made it must look. have jumped into my eye through my glasses I made into look, my eye. I made it look so good. Made you look ah, <laughs> so, good. <laughs> so good. So good. So yeah. good. Welcome to the Neil Diamond of... <laughs> Oh, you were doing James Brown and I'm doing Neil Diamond. I guess we just come from different parts of the I'm iTunes kind of a, charts. I'm kind of a James Brown guy. My generation's James Brown was Neil Diamond. <laughs> Let's get right into it by getting into not the episode first. Let's continue with our feature that we started last month and talk if we still don't quite have a name for it, but let's yeah. talk about... We had a name for it last month. Did we have a name for it? I don't remember. Is it Don't Cut in Line? It's Don't Cut in Line. <laughs> yeah, what did you do this month? That's a, oh yeah, we should probably introduce for new oh, listeners. Yeah. We're going to talk about something we did or or experienced in the last month or sometimes it's all three yeah no, for daniel it's mostly the second one <laughs> i don't eat things i do things <laughs> i don't eat i do things to food <laughs> well this past month something i uh, did which I've, I've done before but i want to talk about the throwback thursday series at the lemley theater in north hollywood okay every thursday they show a, a movie from the past uh-huh. and the one i saw was weird science and it was <laughs> that's what you saw okay yeah you were, it was part of that i think when we were recording the intro you would not stop singing the weird science theme song it was your first time watching it right yeah i've never seen it before come on tell me your experience watching weird science um well it's very dated it certainly gets me going i love that part <laughs> it's your favorite version of robbie Darney jr which is like he's always looks like he's wet and shaky yeah well yeah. I, i'll make the joke to you i didn't understand why much like when i watched the spider-man movie i didn't understand why iron man was involved and i felt like i wasn't <laughs> I gotta watch all the. I gotta watch Sixteen Candles. God, I gotta I, watch. Yeah, you gotta watch Breakfast Club to understand who Molly Ringwald is in Sixteen Candles. <laughs> Why do they all go to the same school? I don't get it. <laughs> Aside from, well, I like the movie. It's yeah. funny, and there's one part in it where I could uh, not stop laughing. Uh, go ahead and say what it is. It was the part where Bill Paxton turns into a giant trash monster. <laughs> he's uh, not trash. Uh, he's trash of the body. I was trying so hard yeah. not to scream with laughter. And how was everybody else? <laughs> Everyone else laughed as much as you should laugh at that, which was <laughs> like, ha ha ha. But I was like shaking in the seats <laughs> and my whole shirt was wet with tears. And I was just, I wanted the movie to be over so I could go scream into a pillow. I imagine it's like the scene in American Werewolf in London at the end when he's in the movie theater and he's beginning to transform and he's just shaking in his seat and people in the theater are like turning around. You text me, I think probably right when you came out of the movie theater like, you've seen Weird Science, right? You've never mentioned to me that there's a poop monster in it? I'm sorry, Lisa. Oh God, No, but it wasn't even, again, we're getting too far away from what I'm talking about, but it wasn't, the funniness isn't that he has a monster voice, it's that he has his normal voice in a monster body. Anyway, but the whole fact that they have these movies, like this was part of, uh, it was like April Shower, so it was all movies that had memorable shower scene so it was oh. like Carrie, Psycho cool. and this and Starship Troopers which I've never seen. You still have never seen it? No. I didn't go to that screening. Hmm, okay. 
I wasn't welcome back after the way I reacted. I think the only significant shower scene, the thing about the shower scene is that it's male and female in one shower. Oh, like, really? Like, it's like a big group. Oh, yeah, it's unisex. It's a that? unisex shower I've been scene. waiting to see that for years. <laughs> Men and women? It's like a buffet. Um, it's like a gender buffet. <laughs> it's a fun thing. They, they have a different program every month. Like, next month, I think it's like military movies. So they're showing like MASH and Platoon and uh, Five Will Goes West. That's, <laughs> that's pretty cool. I like that they theme it and then they, they pick yeah, it is fun. Like I went to it before. I saw 2001. I guess it was they showed it uh, every week for four weeks because no. <laughs> as Greg says it's so it's long it's so long they, you have to watch it in four chunks <laughs> but yeah it's fun and it's regular price of a ticket there movie pass covers it and they usually have comp tickets on like gold star that you can and it's solemnly's in in North Hollywood I don't know if other ones do it but they definitely do it at the North Hollywood one and they have like I remember last uh, Halloween they had current horror movies from other countries oh wow so it was like troll yeah. not troll troll hunter uh, <laughs> it was trolls it was no. Pixar's trolls <laughs> It's a little-known Bulgarian film. <laughs> this is uh, more in your side of the thing than mine. I'll get to mine in a minute. But I really like during the Halloween season when the movie theaters, the, the big ones that play the, the old movies. The new, the new Beverly, Beverly, Arrow, and the Egyptian. I don't think yeah. the Egyptian does, but for sure New Beverly and the Arrow will play 24 hours, like from Dusk yeah. Till Dawn horror movies. And I went to... The, Literally. Yeah. They'll, cover, they'll show Dusk Till Dawn, Dawn from uh, Dusk Till Dawn. <laughs> they really stretch it out. I think I went to... I want to say I went to the first one, which was... Well. Wow. I think it was like Reanimator not a living dead house by the cemetery and another but it's it was it was great i i love I the I, yeah. I, I that's the thing i would never i would make it through two and yeah. then i would either wet myself or cry myself it, like it, i did in weird science it was back before i started doing all of my night activities so mm-hmm. like being up late was like this isn't a big deal like i'll, I'll it, what one night of the week i'll stay up past the uh, four in the morning and now You're the just, night stalker right oh yeah i'm the <laughs> the new night stalker. i'm the new not since they arrested they just arrested jody angelo which is his, name, his name and i like to say his name now I thought you were going to say Jodie Foster. They arrested Jodie Foster. Because, hey, they put Bill Cosby in jail, too. A lot has happened in the last two days. (laughs) By the time this comes out, Jodie Foster will be in jail. (laughs) So what's yours? Let's talk about yours. Well, anybody who's following anything in LA that's comedy-related, Meltdown closed. Mm -hmm. They were worried about it maybe a month ago when they said that someone had bought that block and they were probably going to turn it into uh, condos or something. Yeah, that's what I saw. Yeah, they closed Meltdown, so I went there for (laughs) what I thought was the last night of Friday night, and I got very sentimental, and everyone around me was like, I didn't see anybody really maybe like maybe two or three people that I recognized everybody else I didn't know it was kind of packed but it, it didn't seem like sad so I was like am I the only one that's really bummed out by mouth I mean, I've been going to Mountain since I was in high school I started drawing comics there then we discovered uh, well we started watching comedy there together so like I, you know it's been involved we almost did the we open mic there the, yeah, you got your name called and then we left uh, <laughs> and then we left to go buy a present at a different store and then came back when I decided I should do it and it was too late it was too late that's why I built those condos <laughs> but it turned out it was the second to last night so the last night was the following night and everyone when I was tonight, everyone was posting and being real sad. But yeah, we lost Mountdown, which is a real bummer because it was kind of a hub for a lot of different things. We had taken an improv class there. We had hung out there a lot for different reasons and stuff. I was drawing it, comics it, with mythology there. Yeah, it was a fun place to be in. But then again, something is still there. Yeah, I don't know because it's not like they just closed that one store down and then the stage next door is still open. Like I, I imagine all like the flower shop and the Russian That's, grocery store. <laughs> and the Russian and, shop. And the tattoo shops. Like I'm sure that those are all gone now. That's what I thought. But then there's this thing. It's been 
rebranded the Ruby. The Ruby. Which apparently is still operating out of there. I but in, I, the, in the ruins or what? <laughs> uh, they're in the basement of the yeah, new condos. Yeah, wherever the Phantom of the Opera is, they're yeah. there. Right they're now. in the canals underneath <laughs> Meltdown. <laughs> it's kind of passing along to now like Dynasty Typewriter is a thing, which is at the sub-theater that's on like Wilshire going towards Koreatown. So it's it's continuing in a lot of different forms, but it's just it's a bummer to lose the building itself. Like It yeah. meant a lot to me. Uh, it didn't mean so much to me, but I understand your emotion. And the last thing, me and girlfriend went there the night, and we saw you like- and girlfriend. Me and girlfriend went there. Me and my girlfriend went there for the show, and it was stand-up and sketch. Becca Greenberg was on that, who I know. It was a good show. Showing off. Packed house, but yeah, it was- it. it it sucked. It sucked when yeah. like the, the lights turned on and everyone had to stand up. I'm like, oh, that's it. That's the last time I'll do that. <laughs> All right, everyone get out. Someone has to move their couch <laughs> in. They're waiting outside. Well, I'm glad we did your second and made us all sad after mine. That made everyone so happy to hear. Let's move on to our newest segment newest on the segment. show. Also have no name, but this is what we sent out the call to action for to mm-hmm. send us any questions you had for us. And the first one came from, of course, our best fan. <laughs> is uh, it me? Uh, oh, Look. let me just rewrite this. Ooh. Can we record earlier? <laughs> yes, this is from our best fan, Greg. This is from our number one fan. His uh, I won't say his real name, although we've said it like four times on this show, we but have. I'll just say his Instagram name because that's how he posted it. Uh, Uranga Emilio. So this was his question. What's the coolest aspect about the city that you've been unable to work into a show topic? All right. So moving on, <laughs> we didn't say we're going to answer the questions. That's a good question, though. If <laughs> Very we were to, good. If we were to answer it. I think you and I have always tried to tackle, like, we want to do the comedy scene in L.A., but it's yeah. so vast. Yeah, we've talked about yeah. ways, because I was thinking, like, maybe one month we should do, like, the clubs that became the comedy yeah. clubs and first and the next month. Came, but, it, yeah. yeah, it seems to be, like, the problem isn't just that it's, like, a revolving door. So, like, it, it seems like there's so many in and out, and yeah, it's depending also, on the... the the mood of the speaking of meltdown it's just sort of like an intangible thing like yeah a, i don't know because it's tied to the movie industry there's nothing really organic or maybe there's i i don't really know yeah we haven't done the research we, yeah, <laughs> we, we don't, don't know, know how to yeah <laughs> like the lapd is another one where it seems like really hard yeah, to that tackle seems daunting. It because it's it's just so complicated yeah there's some topics where we wanted to look into like we once tried doing uh the world's fairs that oh, were here yeah, yeah, and, we, and we got like two weeks in and, and realized there's nothing <laughs> there's no information about these yeah, world's fairs that have happened if, here. if it there is it's not on the internet like yeah. so it happened and to we're be not like looking what, we're gonna go read research. plaques around town <laughs> mine that i had was um because we once tried to cover this uh-huh. when we were getting ready for the the live thing at the adobe where we were talking about the like legends and stuff from the valley yeah yeah we wanted to get into like the beliefs and the legends of the native people oh yeah yeah, of the yeah. Keech oh, and all that's that. right yeah and i contacted them and they're like yeah we do have stuff but it that's kind of like our stuff that's yeah, sort of within the tribe which i understand right. like it we probably shouldn't be telling you know yeah. why should they tell us and we're not the ones that should be telling the story yeah. but that's something i'm interested in of just like yeah, what here. what what is there like how did all this get here yeah. and what's about what's going to happen which is stuff that uh, we can't know. <laughs> I like, and that, I understand. Yeah, I completely understand, and I, I like that there is privileged information that we're not privy to, but so so is like nobody else except yeah. anybody that's yeah. inclusive. In that. As long as we're all left out, yeah. I feel as long good. as we're all excluded, I'm happy with that. Yeah. Something I wish I could demonstrate is how some things don't change. You know, like what we do here for this is we tell stories and show how people and things have changed. And I also want to look at 
things that haven't changed. Like sometimes that there's just not always a story there about how things don't change. Like I, I guess in talking about gentrification or thinking about gentrification, it's always about how a new set of people will come in and change the demographics and get rid of stuff that they think is not important. And I always think about the mural that was by my house that I liked mm-hmm. a lot. And now it's it's a mural or a painting of Darby Crash. <laughs> the, the mural of roommate you're talking exactly, about. Exactly. Yeah, roommate they, the cat. They, yeah, they just painted over Darby Crash and put this cat. <laughs> he kept wandering into our school. <laughs> you know, stories happen when things change or, you know, there's no story when nothing changes. Yeah. we There's no like, and then for the next 40 years, yeah. making tortillas yeah. the whole time. <laughs> and they were happy. <laughs> there's those, all these parts of town that aren't necessarily gentrified. Like, I keep thinking about like maybe Downey or Southgate and those areas over there that I like going to. It's not that there's no stories there. It's not that nothing important happens there, but there's no like big shifts happening there as far as I can tell without yeah. anyone telling me outright. <laughs> Only within the tribe. Only within the <laughs> tribe. My grandpa planted a tree outside of our house. Show off. Uh, and uh, on the day that my younger brother was born. Huh. Now it's Henry? Favorite. No, not Henry. Oh, good. No. I was surprised Henry That's did That's my nice mom's thing. dad. It's not my grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> my dad's dad planted a tree. And now like it's been my brother, you know, my younger brother's like 25 now and the tree's like upending the concrete and stuff and it's just like, like your brother yeah, just like my brother and the tree is like it overhangs the street so like the bus hits it so the city has to come and cut just it like your brother uh, <laughs> he's so tall uh, trim that boy life has changed since they planted that tree and like you know different things and my life has changed and that's you know it, the whole area has changed but like you can't really tell the story of like a tree like a tree is in la like have you, you read the giving tree things that don't change deserve some attention but also like there's also no story there. yeah exactly yeah. it wouldn't be interesting it might not so be. sorry we're only here for conflict <laughs> we're here to bring stress and tectonic sh- take tectonic shifts take my tonics please we, uh, that's enough we've we've covered that we've gone 15 minutes and we haven't even started the episode no that's our new thing we start long like every other we podcast go. i've ever heard <laughs> in my life now and now here begins all of our commercials <laughs> Pow! i just killed my cat oh is this a casper mattress i'm laying on Wiz <laughs> warby parkers Warbur- make great <laughs> snacks i can cook with my family this warber warbers <laughs> So yeah, if you have a question, you can email us la.meekly at gmail.com or message us on Instagram at or, LA Meekly or at Twitter. Or Facebook. Any, anywhere Instagram you can find us. Instagram is at LA underscore meekly. meekly. But yeah, any way you want to contact yeah. us. Yeah, if we, you have our phone number, you know what to do. Don't if, call us. If there's more questions flooded into us, we'll do more than one. We will. Greg has been wanting to... We've gotten a few questions. He wants to do them all in one month and then we have none. If you've asked us a question, we're going to get to it okay. soon. Fair. Truce. The next question for next month, why don't we do more? <laughs> this one comes from Greggy's the Best. Uh, we haven't even talked about what we're talking about this Oh, yeah. Month. Well, we, we're we're stringing gonna, people well, they, well, they've looked at the title. They yes. saw a funny word or two. They get it. X-lax. Uh, <laughs> Poop is funny. Daniel declared it. X-L-A-X. We're going to be talking about air... Yeah, I didn't declare poop was funny. I declared people made of poop is funny. <laughs> okay, so we're going to be talking about airports, airports this week. This week, this month, this week. But it'll last for a month. We're going to talk for the next couple hours about it, and then you'll hear it for a month. It'll be like watching 2001 once a week. Oh, well, it plays once. So you mean like back to back because it lasts a week. That's what you mean. You're not nice. (laughs) You're not nice to Stanley Kubrick. No one was nice to Stanley Kubrick. Especially Shelley Duvall. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so airports. We're talking about kind of uh, the three main ones because there's a small like what White Man Airport and Van Nuys White Airport. White Man, there's Santa Monica, there's Long Beach, there's uh, we have a fair share of yeah, airports. Yeah, I covered a few that used to exist just briefly. Okay. L- let's just get it started. We've okay. been teasing them long enough. Yeah. Uh, the first one I'm going to talk about Burbank. 
airport we've been there we have been there we walked there to pick up a rental car That's right. and we were in the wrong place <laughs> burbank airport gateway mm. to the skies emergency exit of a place who i'm never quite sure what their official name is <laughs> the airport that's in burbank is important for being the commercial air transportation hub of los angeles for a long time but knowing what to call it it's always i never know what to call it yeah. so that's kind of what i'm going to focus on in this story it started in 1928 as the angeles mesa drive airport and it wasn't really much of an airport but it was attractive enough to be bought by the United Airports Company of California, which had nothing to do with United Airlines, but rather was a company owned by Boeing who planned to use the airport as their Southern California base. So they turned it into a proper 234-acre airport of the day. Sorry, what year? Uh, This is 1928. Okay. This is a little before you were born. I think I might have been born for that. (laughs) No, I remember. I remember. So they reopened it on Memorial Day weekend of 1930 as United Airport. Again, nothing to do with United Airlines. Airlines. The United States was popular at the time. <laughs> Unity was the thing. No. We were just we were only 70 years out of the Civil War and emerging into the Infinity War. <laughs> I tried explaining to Melissa that calling the US Civil War the American Infinity War was funny. And then I realized <laughs> that doesn't even really make sense. It doesn't at all. It's a lot of words. But I was still right. Words. And the fight was worth it. (laughs) So they were a direct competitor to the Glendale Airport, which Mm -hmm. we might be getting to. Mm -hmm. That was the main location of passenger air travel, the Glendale Airport in LA at the time. But the only airline flying out of United Airport until 1933 was Boeing's Pacific Air Transport. But then they brought in Western Express. That's an airline. And then to, it's it's like the Pony Express. But in the air. But in the air. Ponies with wings. The Pegasi. Pegasi. (laughs) So then to make all the names involved here even more confusing, on August 34th, 1934, the United Airports Company of California, which had nothing to do with United Airlines, was bought by United Airlines. So now United (laughs) Airport had everything to do with United Airlines, which was a bad business move for an airport trying to lure more airlines to their location. So other companies didn't want to fly out of an airport named after their competitor. So in 1935, the airport was renamed Union Air Terminal. By this time, Union Air Terminal was now the primary passenger airport in LA. And the title only got stronger when Transcontinental and Western Air came to them in 19. and then American Airlines in 1939. As we talked about a few months ago, this was the airport Amelia Earhart flew out of when she was in L.A. and... uh then was not in LA and Mm -hmm. was not anywhere. And also similar to something we talked about last month, a famous pilot named Colonel Roscoe Turner. Turner. You know about him? A little bit. Did you know that he would fly out of here with his co-pilot, a lion named Gilmore? No, I didn't know that. (laughs) It was a publicity stunt for Gilmore Oil. So he flew around with another flying lion, flying lion. Flying lion. But when Gilmore the lion got too big to fly in an airplane, (laughs) they decided to keep him in a cage in front of the main terminal at Burbank Airport. Are you serious? So he was the first thing people saw when they landed in LA. It was a you sad like MGM roar. movies, right? Check out this. You know that new death threat you've been looking for? <laughs> It's all sad. But time kept moving on and names had to keep changing. So in 1940, the place was bought by Lockheed, who had a plant right next door for $1.5 million, and it was renamed the Lockheed Air Terminal. Mm-hmm. They used it to test out their new planes. And during World War II, they kept it going as the only civil airport running in town. Lockheed actually kept their name on that bucking Bronco for a long time because the next name change didn't happen until 1967, when it was renamed the Hollywood Burbank Airport. And that lasted until 1978, when it was sold to the Burbank Glendale Pasadena Airport authority and was beautifully renamed the Burbank Glendale Pasadena Airport. And that lasted until 2003 when a tragedy a hundred years in the making happened and Bob Hope died and it shook the nation. (laughs) And that prompted the airport to rebrand itself after the local boy and became known as the Bob Hope Airport of 
Glendale and Pasadena. Of Glendale, Pasadena, Union, Boeing, <laughs> Draper Price. <laughs> Peggy, I want my own airplane. Peggy, Peggy. I want you to fly me. Peggy, put, pilot? The, put the lion away. Peggy, please, take off your shirt and fly me around. <laughs> fly me to the moon, Peggy. Bang, zoom. Hope used this airport when he was alive. He used it a lot, and he kept, maybe when he was dead, he kept his private jet there, but more importantly, he was always jealous of John Wayne for getting an airport named after him in Orange County, so this was the least we could do for yeah. Bob Hope. But even Hope dies, because in 2017, the name was changed once again to the Hollywood Burbank Airport. And that's what it's known now in an attempt to attract more business by having the name Hollywood on it because nobody flying out of town knew where Burbank was and they knew even less where Bob Hope was. Forest Lawn? <laughs> I fly into a grave directly. <laughs> no layover. But the big layover once you get there. In legal documents, it's still known as the Bob Hope Airport, but Hollywood Burbank is now its public name. So it's located at 2627 Hollywood Way in some town called Burbank. I don't know where that is. It's 500 acres, has two runways with room for 14 planes to park at any given time and it serves 3.8 million passengers a year. The airlines that fly out of there, Alaska, America, Delta, JetBlue, Seaport, which I have no idea what that is, Southwest and United. It's pretty old though and the terminal doesn't meet modern safety standards because it's too close to the runway and if an earthquake hit, the entire place would just crumble. So Stop it. Stop it. No, it's okay. You'll be in an airplane. You could just fly away. Airplane's shaky too. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> they always have one wheel on the ground. <laughs> There's been so much infighting among the people who run the place in the city of Burbank. So all the renovations they've been trying to do are like constantly being stalled and then canceled. Yeah. This place eclipsed the Glendale Airport, but they eventually got eclipsed by LAX, which I'll get to. But I like it. I like it that way because now it's like, it's kind of like your own personal airport that yeah. you have to pay a lot of money to use and can't get a nonstop flight out of. <laughs> it's very easy to fly out of Burbank it Airport. Is, it is a less stressful LAX experience. It's like the Toontown of it's Disneyland that is LAX. Yeah. Oh, now Star Wars land. Sorry. <laughs> all right. My segment's call. I'm going to keep naming them. You just won't quit. Not my first air rodeo. <laughs> They're getting better. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so talk about Glendale Central Air Terminal, which is what I'm going to talk about. We have to talk about Glendale. And with that, we have to talk about... Zanku Chicken. <laughs> Everyone's had some. <laughs> Leslie Brand. Okay, if anybody doesn't you know anything about... You should have called this on brand. Glendale was a 150-acre subsection of Rancho San Rafael and was squared off and purchased by six families in 1877 and became incorporated in 1906. In the late 1980s. Cut to the late 1980s. 1980s. Ready Hip Player One is getting <laughs> implanted into Calvin Klein's head or whoever wrote that book. In the late 1890s, it was civilized and had like a westerny feel to it. But the modernizing of Glendale is mostly credited with one man who is called the father of Glendale, Leslie Coombs Brand. Glendale was already seemingly well off, but with Brand's help, they extended the Pacific Electric Line farther into Glendale and with this the population boomed in the area. He owned the title and guarantee and trust company. He developed the main drag of Glendale which is now called Brand Boulevard. He planted palm trees. He uh, personally personally planted palm Johnny trees. Johnny Palmstead. He put up the first country club in Glendale. He opened the city's second bank which is worth credit. <laughs> he opened a telephone company, the Mirador Water Company, Power and Light Company. He like opened up all these utilities. He was out creating subdivisions and always always promoting Glendale. He put out a full page ads which would have you been to Glendale. And back in really? those days when all you anyone knew was dirt and wood, Glendale sounds nice. <laughs> he was good at branding. Anything else? Branding like like in a hot poker. I've been branded. <laughs> Leslie Brand lived in the hills of Glendale along the Verdugo Mountains in a place he called Mirodero, which is Spanish for the lookout. Many people called it the Brand Castle, though. He owned a huge plot of land around it, almost down to where Glen Oaks Boulevard is, which is a huge stretch. Brand was a little guy, and just like little guys who obsess over control, he liked new toys built just for him. His home was one of those toys. He went to the Chicago World's Fair, the Columbia Exposition in 1893, and saw a British sponsored East. Isn't that the H.H. Holmes one? I don't know. I don't think it is, but I don't know. Hmm. I don't I think, think it is. I think we might know 
who the H.H. H. Holmes killer is now. <laughs> <laughs> who killed H.H. H. Holmes? Uh, that's what we've been trying to figure out for years. Who was H.H. H. Holmes? Was it H.H. H. Holmes or was it Leslie Coombs Brand? <laughs> he shouldn't have eaten that piece of pizza. And he did. Caught him. Got him. So he visits this Chicago World's Fair. He sees the Columbian Exposition. It's 1893. He sees a British-sponsored East Indian Pavilion, and he thought, give me. He hired his brother-in-law. How do I colonize them? <laughs> his brother-in-law, Nathaniel Dryden, to build it. And in 1904, it was finished. It's a beautiful building with elements of Spanish and Moorish and Indo-Saracenic architecture and design. When it comes to vehicles, though, which we're going to be talking about, he was one of the first guys to own a car in the area, the Tioga <laughs> Wolf, he called it. I can't Lucky figure out what it's custom built. There's like a hot rod and old custom car website that my brother's been looking at for like 20 years. And I finally used it today looking up the Jalopy Journal because <laughs> everyone's talking about the Tioga Wolf. Is it really called the Jalopy Journal? Yeah. That's fun. It's cool. So, I don't know about that, but <laughs> <laughs> driving the Tioga Wolf was his driver, Mr. Fletcher Pomeroy, who was his escort, his chauffeur, and he would drive him around. But this new thing caught brands flancy. Flancy. Flancy, no cutting in line. Flying machines. A they were fancy? In, they were in called airplanes flancy at the time. Flancy that. Well, flancy that, flying fancy. Can't you call this segment that now? I came up with a good name. And you laughed. Huh. Well, Flancy that. <laughs> well, that's on brand. Now, flying machines were relatively new. It's 1904. Flying as a human being was relatively new. The Wright brothers took flight officially in September of 1903 with the Kitty Hawk or the started test runs of Kitty Hawk. Finally, in 1903, they did it. You know, I in my research, I also had to look back like, when did the first people fly? Yeah. It's a lot. That's a lot more recent than I thought it was. Oh, yeah. No, it wasn't. <laughs> it was only 110 years ago. Yeah. I mean, I was still in diapers. The diapers were made of burlap at the time, though. And it wasn't for <laughs> pooping. It was for another thing. But I kept pooping. Well, my Diapers were made of airplane wings. <laughs> Flying machines. They were all the jazz at the time. You couldn't have rage. You needed that for the war. So they were all the jazz at the time, which was also impending. Aviation enthusiasm was sweeping the Southland. The first flying machine landed at Glendale in 1905. It was called the California Aero. Uh-huh. A-R-R-O-W. Uh-huh. Uh, was being flying by, flown by a guy named Roy. Oh, my God. Roy Nabinshu. Mm-hmm. Nabinshu was an aviation engineer and a aviator from Ohio. Not many people in 1905, Southern California, had seen a flying machine. So this was like a surreal occasion. <laughs> to see a man take flight and come into town. It was a big deal. He arrived in town in his 52-foot-long Baldwin dirigible, which is a Ooh. blimp-like vehicle, yeah. or as the paper at the time called it, a steerable balloon, <laughs> which I'm like, it is. They're yeah. not wrong. It had a Curtis two-cylinder motorcycle engine driving a six-foot tractor propeller in perfect conditions. It can go a little over 20 miles per hour. <laughs> and you had to pedal hard. <laughs> no. The California Aero raced a Pope Toledo racing car from Schutz Park, which we talked about before, which Whoa, was- they had an air land race yeah from Schutz park which is washington and olive to the hotel raymond in pasadena speeding towards the 10 mile finish line it's 10 miles away the airship beat the car by two minutes you can make a direct path yeah for sure but it's funny is like cars weren't that popular neither were planes so you just kind of had to wait for the news for who won like you see them take off like well i'll never know what happened (laughs) well when my next kid's born i'll name it after the winner (laughs) so that was like front page news obviously and uh, it put the idea of leisurely air travel in the minds of southern california residents (laughs) emphasis on leisure (laughs) It seemed like the Wright brothers made flight possible, but now it was up to scores of other weirdos and daredevils to turn into both a revolutionary method of travel and a gimmick. They did both those things. It's where we are right now with space travel. Yeah, exactly. Only it's taken a lot longer. Glendale resident and high school student saw Nabin Shu's arrival to LA. His name was Edgar S. Smith. He was so inspired by seeing the flying machine, he took the same steps the Wright brothers did. One small step. Towards... (laughs) 
Kitty Hawk. This maybe. actually is one step close to Kitty Hawk. He looked to the Wright Brothers' inspiration, Octave Chanute, for inspiration. Chinute, what are these names? They're old-timey names. <laughs> Chanute had engineered a biplane hang glider that had inspired, like I said, the Wright Brothers. So Smith, in a woodshed in Glendale, devised a triplane. Basically, his triplane was designed like a huge box kite with wings spanning about 16 feet with a centerpiece featuring six-foot foot extensions from high angles. So it, it, it's mostly just kicking. That sounds terrifying. I, I don't think it worked. It sounded really wacky. But what I'm just trying to get at is people were trying now like it had yeah. inspired people in glendale i don't know why specifically in glendale i think because they had a lot they were a little more well off and there was a lot of stuff and Free then time. brand was there with hit we'll get to brand before it was used as a mode of transportation or to shoot down nazi planes the only two purposes for aviation were getting rich people from a to b and daredevil stunts a biplane taking down nazi planes pedal faster pedal faster boy. the red barons on <laughs> us <laughs> we gotta shoot down hitler pedal faster i'm trying to aim through these clouds <laughs> i need to shoot down goebbels dirigible <laughs> Hand me my dart gun. Before we move on to the airport and practical uses. Wars are funny. Wars are funny, especially old ways of fighting. Fencing. All of those wars that were settled with fencing. Yeah, oh yeah. yeah. Touche. On guard. On brand. Now, before we move on to the airport, practical uses of a new mode of transportation that would change everyone's lives. Let's get to one more story in aviation about aviation and planes, but let's... First of all, talk about Brand. It's the late 19-teens. Brand, after another automobile breakdown, his long drive up to Mono Lake, which is near Yosemite. He had a cabin there. Brand hated that distance time-wise. He hated that long drive to Yosemite in a car that couldn't go past 50 or something, like a mile a minute. So he turns to Pomeroy and he says, Pomeroy, do you think you could manage an aeroplane? And Pomeroy replied, well, sir, flying up there among the clouds must certainly have advantages over the highway travel, but it's the devil of a long way to fall. Thanks, <laughs> That's Pomeroy. not what I asked. Pomeroy declined his duty to pilot an aircraft so he didn't suffer the same fate as Icarus. So Bran, now with his own custom-built airplane, a Curtis JN6H or Hesogeny, that's what he called it, Hesogeny, hired a... Hesogeny. Stop that. He hired a completely reliable guy named Lieutenant Elon Brown who continually crashed into things and Bran had to move on to a Packard Lop... I want to say Pierre, but it's P-E-R-E. Lapair. That means daddy. Oh, with no Elon Brown. I heard that. These are things I've heard from people before, and I couldn't find stuff. I heard he had a plane made of really heavy wood that was too heavy to go anywhere. And I also heard he had a limousine plane, which might be the same plane. What? Another problematic design of his. And he was frequently upset that his planes couldn't take off from his home due to his house sits at the bottom of the Verdugo Mountains. So there's no, he can't lift off from his house because <laughs> you're either going downhill, which you can't do to take off, or you go uphill and hit the mountains. So like there was just this struggle. So he wanted an airfield. So Why for, can't you go downhill to take off? I think you have to like get off the ground and it's hard to do if you're well going, if you if go off going, a cliff like goldeneye <laughs> everything's goldeneye with you the goldeneye killer um odd job that's a different one but he's in the game <laughs> trevalian he has an airfield on his property for england james i'm trying to talk here. i'm trying to make you die or whatever dr no says go on i'm trying to make you fly fancy that so he has an airfield on his further down on his property it has a hangar and everything it's april fools 1921 <laughs> and brand has a well-to-do man about town party on his property april Fools 1921. But if you drove up to this party up to Miradero, you would find the gates locked and your invitation declined as this was a fly-in only party. A fly-in party. And the only way you can attend this party is you had to have a plane and land it on his property if you wanted to do keg stands or, or hide in the bathroom <laughs> from your boyfriend after they stood at the punch bowl with Gloria Swanson too long. And he has to stand on the other side of the door and be like, Roberta, I was telling her I like her movie. I don't like her. I like her movies. <laughs> I like the character of Gloria Swanson. <laughs> in a, what a character. And boy. Jimmy. Oh no, I'm sorry. Roberta. In attendance among other 
brothers were Cecil Bill DeMille. Cecil Bill DeMille? Cecil Bill DeMille. That's the duck version of <laughs> Cecil B. DeMille. Mary Pickford. Ruth Rowland. Mary Pickford is literally everywhere. <laughs> was she like the mayor of town? She might well, have been. I, I, hey, that's another topic we've never been able to cover. You know what? One day with a sit and just both talk about Mary Pickford <laughs> for a whole episode. I'll cover what she did by day and you cover what she did by night. <laughs> There's a picture with him with two actresses, Ruth Rowland and Mary Mills Minter. I don't know who they are, but I know that they're in a photo with Brand who's smiling and then Mrs. Brand is beside them and she looks mad. <laughs> Aviation pioneer Jimmy Doolittle was there. American ace fighter Eddie Rickenbacker was there. Cowboy star Tom Mix was there. The president of Standard Oil was there. Guests received a hefty lunch, which you would have loved. Served in the clubhouse, which burned down. You had me at hefty. Nah. <laughs> a hefty bag full of lunch. <laughs> also at the party, a big oak cask full of 50 gallons of sour mash whiskey, which everyone was drinking. And the party jazzes on, you know, and the pilots are like, I gotta go home. And they've been drinking whiskey for a couple hours. So they get back on their flying machines that are a bicycle on leather bat wings powered by a trumpet or whatever. <laughs> Wait a minute. Mary Pickford flew in? Maybe someone flew her in. Maybe yeah, someone flew. Maybe Doug Fairbanks <laughs> flew her in. I just heard on the walk over here that he used to lock himself up in a motel room, get completely naked, sit in the bathtub, and drink until um, he got DTs. Anyways. Wow. That has a little bit to do with the story because... Caught me off guard. People are getting drunk and they've been flying and they're flying the wackiest planes you've ever seen. And then two planes almost collided with each other, but the soberer pilot dived under the other pilot and that other pilot clipped some eucalyptus trees, the only casualty. Brand later had those eucalyptus trees cut, probably because of this incident. One of the drunk pilots was Anita Netta Snook. Do you remember that name? <gasps> that was Amelia Earhart's instructor. Yep. Oh my God. She was the one that... She's, and she's blaming Amelia for <laughs> crashing into all the trees? You can't she drink got... a barrel of sour mash whiskey and, <laughs> and think... then take flight. Yeah. She was the person in that accident. Wow. Anyway, so obviously flight was on everyone's mind. It also... First woman to arrive at that party. <laughs> Flying also served a national purpose as well as just like hanging out time. It was now how long distance mail was being transported at the time. There was talk of extending air mail service to Los Angeles, but here's the problem with that. 1922, there's no municipal airport. Glendale, many thought, was a perfect place for an air terminal. There was plenty of empty acreage. Glendale was one of the fastest growing cities. There's already a hub of air activity here. It was to make it the city that it would, like, LA needed, like, a couple things, like the Olympics to make it, like, a real city. Mm -hmm. Glendale needed yeah, watch this. Watch yourself. You're stepping on my territory. You can talk about the Olympics again? <laughs> oh, no. Oh, what have I done? I've got to go back to my friends. <laughs> so, acting upon the word of the Aero Club of Southern California, the Glendale City Council, and the Commercial Aviation Association, they all agreed that it was time to open up a municipal airport and it would be in Glendale. They had a meeting at the behest of the Chamber of Commerce to come up with the funds for the 33-acre ranch that ran along the Southern Pacific Railroad tracks fairly close to the Alley River between what is now San Fernando Road and Griffith Park. The first person to lease land on the airport was a man named Winfield B. Kenner or Burt Kenner. He was the first person to open up a little space on the Glendale lot. Kenner is tied with both Netta Snook, who was his employee, and Amelia Earhart, who they were both teaching her how to fly. He sold her her first. She wasn't. He wasn't really teaching her. But he, she bought her plane from him. From him. But he was around her. Yeah. Well, not by her choice. Okay? <laughs> Kenner had a family operation there in Glendale with his wife Cora and the kids helping out. Uh, they worked the office. They helped build and sew things that went on wings because wings used to have fabric. They lived beside the fabric air. Fabric gives you wings. <laughs> you ever eat fabric before? They lived besides the airfield on Flower Street in a small frame house. One day, the chief of police summoned Bert Kenner and told him, Kenner, we need a man out there to keep an eye on things. Some of these young aviator fellows are real hell raisers. Don't mean no trick flying over this town. Arrest anyone you catch breaking the rules and gave Kenner a deputy badge oh my God. and an extra $25 a month, which back then in the 20s accumulated to $50,000. <laughs> so the Glendale Municipal Airport officially opened in March of 1923. There was an air rodeo to celebrate. They had air races, stunt flying contests, demonstrations of this new thing called sky riding. And nobody knew how to read because it was the 20s. Exposed ankles. 
<laughs> Don't look at it. Jay. Don't look at it. Sinners. <laughs> Put on your widow's gown. Which all kids had to wear back then. You're saying this is a municipal airport. This was a Glendale municipal yeah, airport. Yeah, Glendale, sorry, Glendale Municipal Airport. It was incorporated in a different city and everything, but the municipal airport closed a month later. <laughs> a resounding success. <laughs> What'd you write that skywriting that got it closed in a month? You Bankrupt. <laughs> By the time they got to the T, it was all over. They couldn't even do the T. A Mr. Montgomery of the city council and himself, a wealthy developer of residential properties, so there he already has a motive, contested the airport for its alleged improperties in connection with the purchase of the lot and a tract known as Verdugo Park and demanded the contract be revoked. He apparently said airplanes are never going to amount to anything and that park is too far out of town to be any value to the community. What you don't get about airplanes is that you fly there. Um, You're a slacker airplane <laughs> just like your father. Just like your father. <laughs> Dirigible. Hot air balloons. This will go the way of the whirly gig. You you hear me. The guy who saved the day or led the charge to save the day was a Thomas C. Young or Doc who had built the first. <laughs> I feel like I've said all the names that lead to a Back to the Future yeah, reference. I've said all of them, up. yeah. This guy named McFly, because he flew? He was the first Irish person no, who could well, fly, so they called him McFly. <laughs> he actually learned it from Chuck Berry. <laughs> he learned how to fly from a black pilot, but he didn't get <laughs> he the didn't credit. Get, he didn't get the credit for it. <laughs> there actually is a guy in his story named Wallace Berry. Anyways, <laughs> Doc had built the first private hangar on the field. He was also the Southland's leading champion of aviation and chief spokesman for the Western Aero League. He pulled money together with six other associates and bought the airport acreage for $66,000. These seven guys did this. They called themselves the Glendale Airport Association. And soon enough, they had also cleared the way for the runway to be extended to 1,200 feet. Over the next decade, several aviation enthusiasts would lease spots on the lot to either like build or test aeroplanes with an E. <laughs> the Glendale Fire Chief Art Lankford had been interested in aviation and learning how to fly. He was convinced that there had to be a better use of planes, and one of these ways was to help firefighting and spotting brush fires faster. He bought a Jenny plane for $600 and painted it fire engine red and wrote Glendale Fire Department on it in yellow letters. I thought you were saying that they painted it red and then wrote it in red paint. Nah, you see it, right? You see it. You'll see it from the air. You must be colorblind. Once a fire happens, it's like a <laughs> yeah, it's black like magic ink. Yeah. It's like the uh, the one ring. Just throw it in the fire and you'll see. What's that from? Is that another Back, Back to the, the Future reference? Back to the Future, the two towers. <laughs> it was never put to use to put out fires, but it was utilized for spotting fires. But the idea essentially is that people are taking air travel more seriously and finding practical uses yeah. for it. Big help was having Burt Kinner and his company on the Glendale lot because Kinner made affordable planes at every and every man could afford and Glendale Airfield every rich man could afford. every rich man could afford but because they were more affordable anybody was like I'm gonna buy a plane and see what I could do with it <laughs> there's opportunities to be had there because of Kinner also on the safe air, as ever <laughs> also on the airfield it offered like several people who could teach you how to fly or to do repairs on airplanes also in the same field people were experimenting involving planes and aircrafts as well so all this is happening in the Glendale Municipal Airport lot we should mention also oh boy okay so there's this airship and it's known as the city of Glendale it's called the city of Glendale, mm -hmm. which was a 212-foot prototype of a 337,000 cubic feet capacity all-metal dirigible. Metal? All-metal dirigible. Its cabin was 180 feet, and it was designed to carry 40 passengers and a crew of five people. The man behind us was Captain Thomas Benton Slate, and he envisioned the ability to move large amounts of people across the sky to their destinations. Its ability to hover was attributed to the Slate system of propulsion, which I don't really understand, but it comes into play there, which presupposed the existence of a turbine-generated protective vacuum enveloping the airship at all times. So from what I can tell, it thought that there was going to be a vacuum of space underneath it to keep it from hovering with the help of jet propulsions pushing it off the ground okay. and then it would create a vacuum of so it's air. Like, a, like those things that float like an inch above the water i would i imagine they thought it was going to be like that. from the words that i read when i wrote that down it made it like okay i think i get like air is going to push off the ground just going to hover so in september of 1926 several thousand wild wishers gathered to watch the oh no. 
I love when well-wishers are around. Oh, yeah. Because we've been there. And thrill-seekers and well-wishers gather to watch. We have been there. <laughs> Several thousand well-wishers, thrill-seekers, gathered to watch the first piece of the airship's ribs be laid. What they, is that? They gathered to watch the first piece of it be constructed. This is Prohibition times and there was no TV. They watched them construct a dirigible. Just the first part. <laughs> and so, it had ribs? Well, you know, like the dirigible has to have like support system. So like mm. it has like those things that look like ribs. So they watched they it. baby back? <laughs> no, but they are covered in barbecue sauce. I, you know, I'd watch it. Okay, so the dirigible was ready in late 1927 to have the airship's keel placed. What's it? It's probably the back end. Okay. Uh, the still, rump. The rump. The ribs, the rump. We're getting into the... Tell me about the sirloin. <laughs> In January. Okay, here it comes. 1929. It was ready to have 5,000 people come out and stare at the finished dirigible body <laughs> that still had no means of propulsion because the steam turbines had not been installed yet. No TV, no, <laughs> no alcohol. But they keep coming Make back. population of Los Angeles <laughs> go, go crazy. crazy. They keep coming back. But then, December... Tune in next week, week for... Window. <laughs> in December 1929, on the anniversary of the first test flight of the Wright Brothers Kitty Hawk, the city of Glendale airship emerged from the hangar, and after 30 minutes, it was unemerged because it wasn't working. Two days later, they brought it back out, and on that second day, it took flight, but a light wind <laughs> began rocking the dirigible, and people on the port side saw a giant bulge forming on the upper section of the bow, and rivet heads started bursting off, sounding like gunshots. And the, the so funny. The city of Glendale let out a groan from within the airship, and it rocked to one side before plopping onto the <laughs> ground. And that was the last time the metal dirigible would attempt to be used. But Captain Slate lived to be 99 years old and never doubted that his all-metal airship would one day come of age, even though he had decades early dismantled it. I love when hubris gets... <laughs> humbled in a safe and funny manner <laughs> i love once the rivet heads start popping and it sounds like gunshots the city of glendale pretends to be shot it lets out a groan and it just plops on the ground like Gah! and it never gets back up it's just the silly hindenburg <laughs> well this is the worst thing that will ever happen to a dirigible oh the expected humanity <laughs> oh the humility they had private investors come in and they wanted to turn this into the municipal airport of the greater Los Angeles area. There wasn't one and they wanted this to be the hub mm -hmm. because money and city bureaucracy tend to slow or stunt advances. A group of venture capitalists led by Captain Charles Spicer. Everybody in the story is a captain or lieutenant. <laughs> Spicer bought- Because we're leading up to America Infinity War. It's funny. It's funny. Oh, come on. <laughs> the Spicer Group mm -hmm. extended the acreage of the airport from 45 acres to 175 acres, which would all be used as an airline terminal. A new name was devised by aviation publicist Victor Clark. He wanted to call it the Grand Central Air Terminal, GCAT. I'll call it from now on. Spicer and his group, which included Jack Maddox, who was the Lincoln distributor for Los Angeles, and the Maddox in Maddox Airlines. <laughs> he was essential in providing a twice-daily air service between LA to San Diego a year previously. Since that start, he was able to connect San Francisco, San Diego, Imperial Valley, El Paso and Phoenix now starting to build a network of places where you can land planes for GCAT Maddox and group began buying larger tri-motor planes and preparing the for the commercialization of air travel meaning that this plane could and would have airline passengers no more daredevils and eccentric rich people They're them too but also like regular people who want to travel by motors at this point is it they weren't jets but it wasn't propellers at this point I think they were they hadn't mixed all three yet because eventually what it is is propellers wings and engines right uh, and just luck uh, yeah and a lot of luck and the smooth body i don't know lots of prayer <laughs> yeah but these are tri-motor plates so i imagine there's three engines and some wings so yeah now and a side of fries 
please. It's some ribs. Fed Glendale for decades. <laughs> now, I'm not clear when this happened, but either right before or soon after they opened, which I'll get to in a minute, the Spicer Group sold the air terminal, which now had eight destinations altogether, places to land. They had them all linked together. Spicer Group sold it to Curtis, Curtis with two S's, Airport Corporation, which Spicer now was a director of Curtis. So the Grand Central Air Terminal became the property of the newly formed Curtis Wright, as in the Wright Brothers Flying Services. The official opening of the Grand Central Air Terminal was on Friday, February 22nd, 1929, and this was not their first air rodeo. The opening was a... <laughs> I got back to it. Fancy that. <laughs> it's pretty on brand of Greg. This was no sky riding, daredevils, plane racing thing. This was a gala, white glove style event. And they said they had over 200 film stars and several aviation pioneers in attendance. Actress Dolores Del Rio was there. Mm. Governor CeCe Young was there. Heavyweight champion of the world Jack Dempsey was there. Major CeCe Mosley, who becomes an integral part of the story, was the co-founder of Western Air Express was there. Gary Cooper was there. Wallace Barry, the pilot, was there. <laughs> he was actually an actor, I think, who the liked... Actor? The actor? who liked flying a lot. Gene Harlow was there. Ooh, she had she killed. Had, yeah, she ended up having not a great experience with planes, didn't she? No. Isn't that what happened to Gene Harlow? No, she died of an overdose, but her... Paul- I thought she died in a plane crash. No. Who died in a plane crash? Patsy Cline. Not Patsy Cline. There was someone else. John Denver. Who? who there was someone else. <laughs> I thought I thought Gene Harlow no, she- died in a plane crash. Who's the, who's the one that died in a plane crash and then they later thought that she was a spy? Oh, Amelia Earhart. Um, uh, uh, the other uh, one. The other one. I'm, I'm blanking. I just thought Julia Child, but she, just the spy part. Yeah, just that she was a spy. Let's name all the spies. Now, the, Goldeneye. The, Odd Job. <laughs> Trevelyan. Wallace Barry. Jaws. Now, the year previously, Lucky Lindy himself, Charles Lindbergh, had his first nonstop flight from New York to Paris, which was a big deal. Transcontinental flight is now possible. The Transcontinental Air Transport, TAT, line opened in May of 1928, and Lindbergh was hoping to do another long flight list and after surveying different air terminals chose glendale as transcontinental air transport's western terminus meaning it offered the first paved runway west of the rocky mountains and it served as a departure point for the nation's first transcontinental air service right here in glendale california that makes grand central air terminal the first major airport in la area tat proposed to provide a 40-hour coast-to-coast service using a 16 passenger ford 5at tri-motor transports i don't know any of those words but they wanted to get you coast to coast in 48 hours and they had devised a plan to do that here's the thing about the late 20s jazz age air travel it might have evolved away from like the bicycle with wings stuff but it was still nowhere near it where, where it is now so these pilots were still really nervous about night flying they were scared about flying over like the rocky mountains and rough terrain areas mm-hmm. where the wind is different so what this was was a coast to coast 40 hour flight with many stops where the distance in between air terminals was filled with non-stop train rides and we mean non-stop so they're coming up on Biloxi you better land running because you have to catch a flight soon and you better make that flight in time because you have a train waiting for you so you take a plane from one city to the next you get off you take a train all night or whatever so there's another plane waiting for you for you at the other other side of the and I think it had like eight stops across major American cities I don't know how that was done in 48 hours like you must have not like the plane must have gone so fast the train like must have like silent movies when it's going cartoonishly fast like trains don't go right they must have been going like like a bullet train buster keaton must have been operating the train he could ride on the on the i said the trunk of it jesus the front trunk the front trunk the fanny but in the british sense (laughs) (laughs) but this eventually evolved as air travel was doing and many people credit glendale air terminal as being the birthplace of scheduled airlines this was kicked off in july of 1929 with another huge ceremony in attendance where the Lindberghs, gloria swanson mayor of la john porter who was a 
known member of the KKK, Douglas Fairbanks, Chili Dog Glutton Mary Pickford, christened the city of Los Angeles with a bottle of grape juice because it was still prohibition. <laughs> and also at some point, TAT becomes TWA, Trans World mm. Airlines, a major airline. We should also talk about the terminal and the tower because they are astounding pieces of Art Deco architecture. It didn't go up until 1930 and it was designed by architect Henry Gogarty. <laughs> I know. I love what he did in the 90s. <laughs> it combines Spanish colonial revival with Art Deco designs. It's got great archways. And like, I'm not someone who's like, ooh, archways. But like the archways there, I'm like, oh, this is nice archways. In arcade. You, we, you are that person. Ah, no. Ooh, an arcade without Frogger <laughs> in the British sense. <laughs> the tower, which is a beautiful tower, has statues of figures carved into it. The roof was made with red Spanish tile. There's colorful tiles all along the walls. The terminal waiting area is beautiful. It's a spacious area full of like arches and tile work. There was a bar called the Cock pit cocktail bar a dining hall a sandwich shop if you want to know what this building looks like it was used in Wee herman's Wee's <laughs> big adventure Wee herman in Wee's big adventure when simone gets on the bus and leaves Wee, and then she's like au revoir Wee, and then she leaves and then uh, he tries to buy a ticket and then andy's there and chases him across another state that bus terminal is grand central air terminal when was this building built in 1930 uh, apparently there was a also a two-story spanish hacienda style building across the field that was supposedly a secret vip lounge for upper tier okay that's not the, the supposedly part there was a vip lounge for upper tier guests to drink and mingle apparently also apparently this is the part that supposed apparently there was a secret door that led to the alley river path in case the g-men came looking hmm. for booze <laughs> they want your mike's hard lemonade they want it kind of i'd stick with getting arrested if it's that between escaping through the la river just get me <laughs> here's some things that have happened over like the 30s and 40s edith flows flew out of there on a kinder pow i know it's almost like you were forced <laughs> into a profession because of your name back then <laughs> <laughs> listen you could either swim or fly you gotta do one of those flows she had a kinder powered alexander bullet and she got second place in the power puff derby which was like a race yeah that we talked about that with oh Amelia we did Earhart yeah that's right that, she I got think. second place and two months later she became the first woman to fly a scheduled airline she flew out of glendale howard hughes old pp pp jar himself was a regular <laughs> pp herman pp P. P. herman was a regular at g kent used the hangar there to howard s- hughes in pp herman's <laughs> big adventure <laughs> his big adventure was just washing his hands being able to leave the house was his big adventure <laughs> howard hughes getting the news paper <laughs> oh i'm bankrupt he was a regular there because he had a hangar there where he used to store many of his planes that he would crash that's not all he stored in those hangars jars of pp <laughs> he would crash many of his planes because he probably saw germs on the propellers and <laughs> these gremlins are unclean there's a germ on the wing <laughs> florence poncho barnes became the fastest woman in the world when she clocked in at 196.2 miles per hour in august of 1930 she kept her travel air r plane at the gcat hangar and would do test runs there in 1933 a new jersey surgeon albert forsyth and Charles Anderson landed at GCAT, becoming the first African-Americans to complete a transcontinental flight that happened at GCAT. Famous pilot and record-breaker Laurel Ingalls took off from GCAT, as did the Lindberghs once again to break old records for speed across the country. They did Glendale to New York in 7 hours and 28 minutes. When Lucky Lindy flew the Lockheed Model 14 special around the world in 91 hours for a new record in 1938, his plane landed in Glendale. 1934, Shirley Temple movie Bright Eyes was used in the air terminal as a backdrop. That's where she sings on the good ship. She's sings that on a plane while a group of <laughs> businessmen are like this is cool I like this. <laughs> implied <laughs> entertainment yeah surely yeah. <laughs> that was pretty cool Doris Day singing hooray for ha remember we had to watch that movie when we were writing the parody of it yeah. that's at 
going to the Central Air Terminal. Oh, yeah. right for Hollywood. They also shot Sky Giant and Central Airport there. There was a lot of speculation that the airport was used for the ending of Casablanca. It's not true. No, that's the Van Nuys Airport. Thank you. The Douglas DC-1 was what many people have called the first modern airplane, or at least it was the prototype of the first modern airplane. The DC-3 would be the one that revolutionized civil aviation, the first commercial transport aircraft. That was a DC-3. Up to that point, aircrafts have been like wooden frames and metal skins with three engines. Oh, Lots of ribs. Lots of ribs. The DC-3 actually had a metal hull, strong multi-spar wings. It had two 700 HP engines. Its grandpa was a DC-1. That was housed at Glendale. My grandpa was a DC-1. No way! <laughs> We're probably related. It initially rolled out out of Santa Monica without much fanfare. Nobody really cared, but after an almost crash, I think it was set to be repaired and then certified to fly again, and it was on display at Glendale Central Air Terminal for two years. During the 40s, during whichever war, World War was happening, and World War Infinity War, <laughs> they like to use the war a, a lot. As much as possible. 13-year-old boys love that word more than anything. <laughs> was it Star Wars and Infinity Wars? No, it's actually Dinosaur Wars. It's Dino Wars. <laughs> the airport was used as a training facility for pilots and mechanics. After Pearl Harbor civilians were barred from using the terminal so it became like a place where mostly they would train different types of air brigades and stuff like that soldiers prepared for missions by training with planes flown all over the valley flown from glendale they tested it was an operational p-38 fighter base they also needed because of pearl harbor to hide in plain sight they needed to hide the terminal mm -hmm. so they filled the runway and dirt with brushes and stuff but they also that wasn't enough so they painted the airport to look like streets fields and houses from the air yeah lax did a similar oh, thing did they, did they draw I little people walking on the ground yeah. and like, Hi, <laughs> animatronics <laughs> waving people lockheed was based in airbank which is a hop skip but not jump <laughs> but lackey planes were ran and tested at gcat as well the curtis wright flight school was conducted at grand central training several hundred young pilots for flight and mechanics curtis wright had it since before it opened 1929 now cc mostly who was one of the first guys there watching it he established the curtis wright technical institute which would be teaching pilots how to be mechanics and how to fly but the post-war years were rough for the airport as lax had opened and gained momentum over the 30s as is the hollywood burbank airport yeah burbank had eclipsed them, yeah pretty early yeah pretty yeah. early on they were more capable more evolved than the air terminal built when airplanes were much different. Commercial air travel needed room and GCAT didn't have any. The landscape of Glendale was inconvenient as it was between the Verdugo Mountains and Griffith Park and Mount Lee so planes could only go like east or west. Also Glendale was somehow more of a residential area than Burbank somehow. <laughs> In the 50s the airport was beginning to get run down as it was being neglected. Nobody was really using it as much as planes got bigger. It was outdated and inconvenient. The runway was too small so it officially closed in 1959. The area meaning the terminal and the street alongside the airfield became industrial office spaces. Large portions of the beautiful terminal and tower were demolished in the early 90s and whatever was left had not been touched until 2012 when its current owner the disney corporation <laughs> decided to renovate the structure if you remember for our episode themes schemes and oceanside dreams walt disney was looking at lands around there to yeah, survey yeah. for disneyland so it probably was still in his mind i'll just take this airport mickey mouse wants to live there <laughs> that's <laughs> where mickey mouse my property <laughs> and if any of you from burbank come over here i'll castrate you myself fly off a cliff one wing plane friend <laughs> you thought it was bad when that dirigible lost its wings <laughs> you should try it for yourself Walt Disney Imagineering purchased the office park and is now where the DreamWorks Animation and Walt Disney Imagineering campuses are along the river. It's called the Disney Grand Central Creative Campus, so they worked a title into it. Disney has restored the building to its almost original grandeur and it offers tours, which I took. Really great tour. They can be kind of tricky to find, not only find how to schedule it, but also scheduling it. Like the <laughs> tours are like between one to two, but it's worth it if you can do it. I, I, I'll put a link on when we do that. If you're driving in Glendale, you can see the tower and the building on the street. The address is 1310 Airway, which is between 
Sonora and Grandview runs behind San Fernando closer to the river. The tours are great. The waiting area where they showed us is really great. The site, the airport, not the website, the, the airport was designated a Glendale Historical Landmark in 1977. It's Beautiful eligible. Art Deco on that website. Oh my God. The links, the lettering for the links. Look at this arcade. I can play Frogger here. It's eligible now for a California Register for Historic Resources and a National Register for Historic Places. Also, Brands Castle Mirador still intact. Now mm-hmm. a public library in the city of Glendale, 1601 Westbound Drive. Their collection only has art and music and it's perfect. They renovated in 2010 and go visit it. I hear they have pretty bad employees though. No, I don't know any of the people that work there, but it sounds cool. You should go. I've never been there. I've seen pictures of it. Okay, so we talked about Burbank, which consumed Glendale, Glendale. which you just talked about. And then now Burbank gonna... was like, nothing's ever going to get yeah. me. <laughs> I'm going to be young and big forever. <laughs> Nay. What? What's happening? Nay is for Norse. Did Thanos show up? Nay, Nay is for Norses, like Norse gods, like <laughs> Thor, Thor, Thanos, Thanos, Infinity Thor, <laughs> Cold Thor 2. Okay, so now it's the big one. You okay. know what we're about to talk about. We can't do an episode about airports without talking Los Angeles about the airport. one that builds the most traffic. The one that has stopped up the whole city. <laughs> the reason you're late to work every day is because of this airport. When someone says you need to go to this place, people are like, oh, <laughs> what? It's the reason I never leave town. <laughs> so attention passengers, now boarding all groups for the non stop flight to history town duration of flight however long it takes you to lose interest and turn on my favorite murder instead what i like is that when i title the episode you're like this is dumb but then every sentence of a story is like well uh i'm world building you like work like a james joyce novel into your first sentence <laughs> to talk about and you want to read my james joyce letters to talk about <laughs> we're gonna say the james joyce illusions before we talk about the gas company <laughs> Don't you just love the smell of an oil field at first light? Which is a lyric from U2 almost, who is also Irish. In the 1920s, Los Angeles had no municipal airport until Glendale came along, but that was for Glendale. Glendale, And that was a little bit later. So there was the one in Burbank and Glendale, and there were a bunch of airfields, just small things like Dominguez Field, Mm -hmm. where Cal State Dominguez Hills now is. They hosted the first air show in the United States. Oh, really? Yeah. And they were also the location of one of the first bombing experiments where they dropped sandbags from an airplane on a target. We make fun of how kind of old timey that is. I bet that hurt. That would kill someone. Yeah, it would. And they were also, and they were also explosive. <laughs> here's the name. Of, here's did. a list of all the people that died in that. What year was this? Where they had all this stuff? This, Th- this was just early, early half 19- of the yeah early, early half. 1910s, early 1920s. Okay. Yeah. A lot of sand. At lot, time. The, the sandy days. There was Rogers Airport at Wilshire and Fairfax, which we talked about with um, oh yeah Amelia Earhart. That's where she first went up in the air. Nah. Glendale. Uh, Glendale, (laughs) Glendale, like 20 years later. (laughs) When she she was professional, that was the first time. There was the Griffith Park Aerodrome. Did you know about that? No. It was on the northeast corner of the park, which is kind of like across the river from the Glendale Glendale Airport. Where where the zoo is? Yeah, pretty much where the zoo was. That's why the lion was in the plane. Yeah, they they had to get him (laughs) back to work. There was the Van Nuys Airport also, but these were privately owned airfields and the such. Only lions welcome. (laughs) BYOL. There wasn't one that was city owned for the Los Angeles city to be of service to the city. So yeah. then in 1927, Charles Lindbergh racial slurred his way across the Atlantic and <laughs> on his... Jules, Jules, Jules! <laughs> he just screamed that into the tank before he... <laughs> I'm saying- fueling up! After that, he went on a publicity tour and he gave a talk in LA at the Coliseum in front of a crowd of 60,000 people serious? who came out to listen to a pilot give a speech. Are you going to do a Lindy Hop or what? Do it for do us. Do it. Do it for America. Well, okay. I do. I do. I do. I do. I do. Again, that's what people... People, you know, what else are you going to yeah. do at that time? Basically, in this speech, he scolded the city for not having a municipal airport. Sounds like. And he said, and I know who's responsible nah. for it. Where's my gas tank? <laughs> he opens it at. <laughs> 
So he told them if they wanted to keep up with the rest of the country, they had to change that. So the same year, a group of concerned citizens led by Harry Culver City, they pushed the city to establish an airport and the city knew it was the right thing to do to attract more business and visitors into the city. But the question was, where are we going to put this thing? Henry Huntington's yard. (laughs) We've defeated him. He's a broken man. He's a broken man now. (laughs) It'll mark his trains. Put him right next to him so that for comparison. So 27 airports competed to win that title, but an early idea was that there would actually be three main airports that would service the city, uh-huh. which kind of makes sense. One would be in the valley at a place called Cessnon Field, which I'm not sure what it was. There's a Cessnon Street on the north part of Porter Ranch and Granada Hills. Mm-hmm. So I'm guessing it's somewhere around that area, kind of near where Smokey Robinson lives. Oh, and we, yeah. When we well, saw Smokey Robinson that night. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That, I know the night, area. That night and every night yeah. afterwards. So that was one of them. One was going to be at Vail Field in Montebello around Vail Avenue, kind of near where the Citadel is. Okay. And then the third would have been at a small airfield in Westchester, kind of near the ocean. But this idea was insane. So the Boats city... Boats are for the ocean. <laughs> That's Boat Town. They're not going to like that. The sailors aren't going to like that. The city decided it had to choose just one. So the little airfield in Westchester was plucked from obscurity and sentenced to a lack of obscurity forever. But the airfield in Westchester took a long time to become what it is now. And this is where the history begins. I'm so excited, and I just can't hide it. After the Spanish left the country... <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> you gotta go back. Oh, my God. Back. You're talking about the wine that's developed from the grapes that were brought here that a pilot's gonna get drunk on, aren't you? It all begins with the sunlight <laughs> created four billion years ago. <laughs> Mountains form. The, the ocean recedes. And then comes back and left some goo, and that's where Westchester came from. <laughs> so the Spanish left the country. Lots of land was for grab. So Francisco Avila quickly grabbed that land yeah. in the area and eventually in 1837 the governor you're going to like this story. I know it oh, no, goes no, back you're going to like this. No, I, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Th- well, don't. That, don't. That, that's not what this podcast is for. <laughs> not a comedy podcast. It's more of a movie reference podcast. <laughs> in 1837 the governor officially gave this land to him. He had stolen it for long enough so now it was legally his and he named it Rancho Salso Redondo. But this area of land was huge and the way he got it was questionable so a guy named Ignacio Machado started squatting on the northern part of this land and he stayed there long enough that in 1844 Governor Manuel Mitchell Torina figured what he was doing was illegal for long enough so he's legal now so he got part of that land so he was officially given that part of the area and he named it Rancho Aguaje de la Centinela or Ranch Sentinel of the Waters okay he had built a house there a decade earlier in 1834 that is now known as the Centinela Adobe it's still there right off the 405 a little up the road from Randy's oh okay he built oh, the, donut. the donut was part of the <laughs> it was a Boonwello back <laughs> Giant Boonwello. I mean, it was the crazy time. That's how you got cars to stop when they were going down the highway. That horse has got to pull over. <laughs> and then when America took over, they punched the middle out so it became a donut. This is America. So obviously the Avilas didn't like this. So in 1845, Bruna Avila cut a deal with Machado to give him a house in the Pueblo downtown in exchange for the land he was squatting on and also 40 gallons of brandy. So the sucker that he was, he agreed. And now the Avila family owned all that land that was originally legal theirs after they had taken it from the Spanish illegally who had taken it from the natives also illegally. Also illegally. <laughs> Although there were no laws at the time, unethically. It was still illegal. It, yeah. uh, it went from unethical to illegal. Legal, yeah. To legal. That's how it worked. That's how America was formed. Sometimes you can just build a house and wait to see if anyone kicks you out. Let's wait 300 years. So Bruno tried to run a cattle ranch off of his part of the land, but when the United States took over the land just a few years after this, he found he couldn't keep up with the American way of doing business, which was... Was not brandy. Yeah, which is no Mexicans allowed. <laughs> 
And by 1857, he was completely bankrupt and horribly in debt. So the sheriff seized control of the land and auctioned it off to someone named Hilliard P. Dorsey, who got it for $2,000. This guy was the register of the U.S. Land Commission Office of Los Angeles, and he was also the founder of the city's first Masonic Lodge and their first worshipful master. All creepy. He was also a nasty gunslinger with a horrible reputation. Oh, go (laughs) on, please. He was fond of taking part in duels, and he kept notches on his gun of all the men he's killed. He didn't own the land for long because in 1858, his son and wife, whose name, her name was, her name was Civility Rubbottom. You're making that up to make me laugh. My name is Goody Buttfart. (laughs) The son and wife, they fled to her parents' house because Dorsey was abusive. Oh, the (laughs) Rubbottoms. The (laughs) Rubbottom. Mother and son Rubbottom (laughs) went to father Rubbottom because Hilliard P. Dorsey was abusing them. So he went to her parents' house to get them back. But father Rubbottom was waiting on the porch with a shotgun. And when Dorsey showed up, father Rubbottom said, come no further. So Dorsey came further. And as he was walking up, he took out a gun to toss to his father-in-law to duel with him. Mm -hmm. They were going to duel to the death, son and father-in-law. And as he threw the gun to him, Father Rubbottom shot him dead with the shotgun. That's what you do. And that's how you win a duel. Shoot them when they're offering to have a duel. (laughs) (laughs) So now the rancho was the property of Civility Rubbottom, but she sold it for $630 to Francis J. Carpenter, who was not a carpenter, but rather the city jailer, who then sold it for $3,000 to a much more interesting person named Joseph Lancaster. Brent. Brent was a land lawyer who had come to LA in 1850 from Maryland on a windjammer around Tierra del Fuego all the way up South America to Los Angeles. What's a windjammer? You know the boats that the pirates come in in the third Lord of the Rings movie, but then all of the like ghosts come oh, out of it? Oh, yeah. Those old ships with like big pointy sails. Oh, That's a windjammer. Wow. He had with him on one of these boats uh, an army of the damned. At his <laughs> so, disposal. Please release us no i want i want this ranch he came with a bunch of books that would become the city's first law library wow and he lived at the pueblo next door to the famous lugo family and made a name for himself as the land lawyer for pretty much every famous early la family you can think of the dominguez's the verdugos the yorbas of yorba lindo pio pico and the lugos themselves who he seemed to be in their pocket because he once got the lugo grandsons off the hook for murder and it got a huge paycheck out of that it was made of brandy though (laughs) everything was made of brandy. (laughs) most things were just paid in brandy. Eventually, he became the land lawyer for the Pueblo itself and then went on to become state school commissioner and then in 1855 was elected to the state assembly and he was said to be instrumental in helping get both Franklin Pierce and James Buchanan elected president of the United States wow. with the influence he had in California. That's crazy. So when the Civil War hit... Oh, you haven't brought up the Civil War, have you? Uh, the American Infinity War, sorry. <laughs> American Infinity War. He was approached by the Knights of the Golden Circle. Oh. Do you know who that... You know them? No, I've... All those words are like, oh, the Knights Templar came and visited him. (laughs) Well, the Illuminati came (laughs) to fight this army of the damned that came from Maryland. (laughs) The Knights of the Golden Circle were this really racist group who wanted to convince parts of the United States and Mexico to create their own country based on slavery. So they were going to break off while the Civil War was happening. They're like, hey, let's break off and have our own slave system here. That's not what they're fighting about over there. Is it? Oh, it is. Oh, oh, then let's just join the South. No, they wanted to be separate of that and have like worse slavery than that. Like, I don't wanted, know. Yeah, worse slavery than slavery. Yeah, worse slavery than slavery. It's just kind of still slavery though. So they approached him and tried to get him like, use your influence so we can create this new slave state. And he wanted to get California to secede from the United States. And to his credit, he refused them. But at the same time, he was a Confederate sympathizer. And soon after this, he left Los Angeles 
Douglas and the wonderful ranch he was on to go help the South. But he was arrested for disloyalty to the Union, but then President Lincoln personally ordered him to be released. And then, supposedly after this, he immediately went back to New Orleans and joined the rebels again and worked his way up to becoming an aide to Robert E. Lee. And again, supposedly... He was at Robert E. Lee's side when he surrendered to Grant at Appomattox Courthouse. Wow. So the former owner of the land LAX was on <laughs> was at Appomattox Courthouse on the losing side. It's That's ridiculous. Crazy. Brent was long oh out of the picture. God. So back in 1860, the land was bought for $3,000 by yet another person you wouldn't expect to have a ranch in Los Angeles, a Scottish lord <laughs> named Sir Robert Burnett. He was a baron of Craith's Castle in Bankery, Scotland, and he was on tour in California. California and he loved it so much that he wanted to live here. Is this just like a, it's sort of like a board game where the board's always the same, but it's like a different, like it's a shoe this time and next time it's going to be like an airplane and this time it's like a it's, pipe. It's like we're playing life, but with the cast of Clue. <laughs> <laughs> he came to LA and he's like, I like this. And in 1868, he also bought the Rancho below that ranch. Okay. You know, there was the two that split off the old Rancho the Salso, or the, the double ranchos. Lord of the Rings, two ranchos. <laughs> so that was Rancho Salso Redondo. So he bought that for $30,000 and combined the two into one mega ranch that stretched 25,000 acres called Rancho Centinella. But in 1873, royal duty called when his brother died and he had to return to Scotland to take over his castle. So he leased the ranch to yet another person you wouldn't expect, a wealthy Canadian lawyer named Daniel Freeman for $7,500 a year. Freeman came to LA because his wife had had TB and they thought the fresh air would help her. It didn't. Oh. She died a year later. But Freeman stayed there and tried to raise sheep. But the same year his wife died, a drought hit that lasted for two years and killed 22,000 of his sheep. What year was that? 1873. Okay. He lost all most of his sheep, so he decided to switch to raising barley and this actually was successful in 1882. Wait, there was a drought? There was a drought that killed all of his sheep, sheep. But then he was able to raise... Oh, because barley doesn't need it. I guess... Le- I mean, I'm sure it takes less water to raise 22,000 sheep that's true sheep are the thirstiest of animals we all know fact yeah we all know this that they consume more water than fish do behind fish they're the most (laughs) thirsty (laughs) of all the animals so this it was a success and in 1882 he bought part of the land from the old scottish lord for twenty two thousand two hundred forty three dollars and then the rest in 1885 for a hundred and forty thousand dollars but just two years later he sold eleven thousand of the acres to a land company that would go on to use that land to start the town of inglewood so it started getting sold off in chunks okay like subdivision Pretty much. Some of it got sold. People were using it to grow wheat and lima beans. Then in 1894, he leased 2,000 acres to a man named Andrew B. Bennett, who turned that land into Rancho Bennett, who a few years later, when this sort of thing was invented, decided to set up a makeshift landing strip for local pilots to use. So the novelty of this brand new invention of flying humans started attracting onlookers to watch the planes go up and down. And pretty soon it became a hot weekend destination. Go to Rancho Bennett, watch the planes. Now we go to that In-N-Out by LAX and watch them. (laughs) In and out of the atmosphere. Yeah. By 1920, they were even holding annual air races there that lasted until 1949 with all the changes that this place went to. And this popularity is what brought the land to the attention of the city council looking up a new municipal airfield. And this is the location they ended up choosing on September 26, 1927, when the city of LA signed a 10-year lease on 640 acres of land to open up LA's first municipal airport. We got there. We made it. It just took a Scottish lord. A rebel sympathizer. Yeah, Canadian. More than a, yeah. <laughs> 
a wealthy Canadian. <laughs> so the real estate agent who brokered the deal was named William Mines. So they named the new Mines. site Mines Field. And, and that, they never thought twice about it. I, I thought, like, why would you ever call a place where things land a Mines Field if it's, <laughs> it's not It's a Mines like, Field of opportunity. Ah, you never know where you can step in. <laughs> be, uh, some of that leftover sheep pie. Could of, be an active bomb. Thirsty. You never know. When uh, opportunity knocks, you step on it. Mines Field. When opportunity knocks, it might explode also. <laughs> they opened up October 1st, 1928, but they weren't officially dedicated until June 7th, 1930. But in that time, they had formed the city's Department of Airports to run it and built a 2,000-foot oiled runway, which sounds like a bad idea. But what do me and my degree in air control tower? <laughs> and they had two 100 feet by 100 feet hangars that could hold up to 40 planes. The first of these hangars was built in June 1929. It was known as Hangar 1 and was designed with a Spanish colonial revival look, as yeah. was Hangar 2. But Hangar 1 is actually still there on the southeast corner of LAX, and it's a national historic landmark. Really? Could you visit it? No. <laughs> it's part of LAX. It, yeah, it is. It, yeah. I mean, you could visit it, but you'll be considered a, a national terrorist. terrorist. Yeah. You'll be uh, on the list. No, I'm a historian. I, I, oh, yeah. Who was the third mayor of LA? Oh, I don't remember. I, I read it once. Uh, is it uh, a wealthy Canadian? <laughs> is it a member of KKK? <laughs> Lucky guess. <laughs> yeah, it's there, but I think it's just used for like storage or some company uses it. It can't be visited though, uh, unless we get a job there. That- it's the only one of the original buildings of the airport that still stands and it's in that weird corner because the airport itself used to stretch from what used to be Inglewood, Redondo Boulevard, which is now Aviation Boulevard on the mm-hmm. east, what used to be 114th Street, but is now Imperial Highway on the south, what used to be Arizona Drive, but is now Sepulveda Boulevard on the west, and what used to be Pine Street, but is now Century Boulevard on the north. So it was mm-hmm. a little bit kind of southeast from where it is now. Okay. That land is still part of it, but that's where the. Oh, I see. Was. Oh, it didn't move, it stretched. Kind of. No, both. Okay. I mean, you'll see. Okay, okay. Uh, please. In the Maybe you the- should stretch your mouth shut. <laughs> In the middle of the airport, there's actually a small neighborhood. It's very exclusive. (laughs) So like I said, it was officially dedicated on June 7th, 1930, but it also got a new name that day. So it was only Minesfield for a little bit. It was now called the Los Angeles Municipal Airport, and they were open for limited business. (laughs) 25,000 people came out to the ceremony to watch civilian and military pilots give demonstrations. There were four different bands from the fire department, Santa Monica, the American Legion, and a Bugle Corps. Oh yeah, Bugle Corps. Then the Goodyear Blimp. my favorite type of punk is Bugle Corps. Go ahead. The Goodyear Blimp landed, and a military lieutenant came out who gave a wreath to a woman who then put the wreath on a propeller in front of the administration building. Oh, American life is beautiful. (laughs) Like I had said in the Burbank one, this airport was not doing commercial business in its early days. It was mostly just commerce and mail and that sort of thing, and also air races. In 1928 alone, they had both the National Air Races and the National Air Carnival, which had 75,000 people coming every day to watch it. Amelia Earhart and Charles Lindbergh were flying out of there. From 1932 to 36, they even had a racetrack there that was sponsored by Gilmore Oil and drew crowds of also 75,000. You could only congregate in crowds of (laughs) 75,000. Then in 1937, when their lease was up, the city flat out bought this area and in 1941 the city passed a 3.5 million dollar bond measure to build up the place and it was renamed los angeles airport the idea was to make the place more attractive to passenger airlines and to entice them to fly off their runway and dethrone burbank as the hub of passenger air travel in los angeles okay and then world war ii hit world war infinity war ii (laughs) Uh, infinity gauntlet before the war the los angeles airport was designated as an organized reserve aerodrome but during the actual war it was used mostly as a military base that's kind of what it was 
doing that yeah. whole time. Whole tanks. There were so yeah, flying tanks. There were so many military planes there that they had again. They had to put camouflage all over it to hide it from any potential weather balloons that were passing by. Someone's <laughs> gonna get a heart attack and die. Cut Don't it out. Don't look at it. The only incident that actually happened there during the war, though, was in October 1944 when a pilot from the Women Air Force Service Pilots named Gertrude Tompkins Silver she took off from there en route to Palm Springs. So it was LAX to Palm Springs, and she immediately went missing and was never found. To this day? I mean, what, is she going to show up somewhere? And there's no ocean between us and Palm I, I, Springs. I, it seemed... Uh, Have you check ever been to maps. the Salton Sea? <laughs> I think we should dredge the Salton <laughs> Sea. I think she kind of went you know, because you kind of go over the ocean when you take off, and I think oh. it was foggy or something, and she just didn't come out of the fog. Now she's in the Twilight Zone episode where she's yeah. like, there's dinosaurs. Looking for dinosaurs. Yeah. Yeah. I always go to, there's so much more to that episode, but I'm always like, oh, there's dinosaurs. <laughs> no, it's dinosaur war. <laughs> Even while all this was happening, a plan was set in motion to position Los Angeles Airport as the airport in town. And once the war was mostly over on May 1st, 1945, the city passed a $12.5 million bond to build new buildings on the northern part of the land. So they oh, okay. were moving away from that original original area and turn the old barracks into a cafeteria for future passengers. Same food though. They had so much left over. Now all they needed was passenger airlines, which they managed to get all at once in a brutal coup against Burbank when they stole American, TWA, Western United, and Southwest from them. And pretty much on the same day, commercial passenger service began on December 9th, 1946. All Burbank was left with was Pan Am. And then in January, they took Pan Am. That's the game of life. Yeah. Played with clue members. So now this new Los Angeles airport was the passenger and commercial air king of the city and Burbank had to go back waiting for Bob Hope to die. The next big step was in 1949 when they announced to everybody that they weren't just a place to fly around the country from, they were a place to fly around the world from. So they changed their name to the Los Angeles International Airport or LAX as we know it. The reason it's LAX, it's because the standards of the International Air Transport Association, according to them, every airport needs a code name to go by, like GoldenEye. And in the early days, the airport would just use the same codes as the National Weather Service for the cities they were in, and Los Angeles was LA. But as more and more cities got airports, a third letter had to be added to differentiate their code. So some cities added the next letter in their name, and some just added X at the end, and that's what LAX did. Pretty interesting. (laughs) It was a lot less interesting than I thought it was going to be, but you had to know. I mean, also, like, I never thought of it before. I just thought X meant airport. Uh, (laughs) Airport crossing. That's the shape of their runways. It's very dangerous. (laughs) The rest of the 40s and 50s were a pretty good time for LAX. They built Yeah, that, I bet. <laughs> just watching all the other airports <laughs> slowly die. They built that Sepulveda Airport underpass that goes oh, yeah. under the runway in 1953. Like, it cost $3.5 million and at the time that was the only traffic tunnel that went under a major airport's runway in the United States. The first 100 cars to drive through it when they opened got souvenirs from stewardesses at the other end oh. and were then hit by an airplane. <laughs> I would have loved to have gotten that. And then they got yelled at for not having their seatbelt on. <laughs> no, yeah, thank you. No, thank you. No, keep your window real <laughs> Please, my windshield is plenty clean. Don't. <laughs> Please don't. Oh, you started. They realized real quick that the amount of people using the airport was way more than they were prepared to handle. And this is a theme that is constant for the airport. It would only it was only going to It was only <laughs> not my airport. <laughs> it was only getting worse and worse every year and they had to keep moving to keep up with yeah. Los Angeles. So to do that on June 5th, 1956, the city passed a 59 million dollar bond to open up the space and bring LAX into the jet age. So in 1958 they hired the design team of Pereira 
Aaron Luckman, our old chums oh, yeah, who designed yeah, yeah. such hits as CBS Television City, the Disneyland Hotel, and Mar- and Maryland. <laughs> Marine Land is what they designed also. Some of their original plans would have been great, and some of them were just very dumb. One early idea was to have a helicopter that would pick up a literal bus from downtown full of passengers and then drop it off at the terminal at LAX. No. And that would be a way of getting to the airport. One of them was a sky tram going between all the terminals, which isn't that bad. One had hydraulic underground platforms that would lift passengers to their airplane. Okay. Like a cherry picker? No, no, no. Like you would be underground okay. and like, all right, our flight's boarding. Everyone stand in this area and then oh, it I, rises up to where the airport I is. I see. So the, the airplane is. Mole people technology. When we live underground, but we still need to take planes. Here's what we're going to do. Uh, we only go above ground for air travel. Nah. One plan was uh, to have a center area around everything of reflection pools surrounding oh, okay. a flame lit from Mount Olympus that was carried over by Greece. Okay. Gary read a book about ancient Greece and now all his ideas sort of just revolve around, I don't know, fire and statues. How about if we have this one in the shape of Zeus? I don't know. <laughs> the grandest idea, it came up in a theory exercise in one of Pariah's architecture classes at USC. It was to have the entire place be a giant glass dome that would serve as one huge terminal with six unconnected satellite terminals surrounding it where the planes would park that you would access from the dome via either underground tunnels or elevated walkways. So it's basically like a oh. biodome with little like moons around it and that's where the planes would park. Like a little beehive. Mm, I don't think you've seen a beehive before. Uh, but you have seen biodome. <laughs> People may not be familiar with beehives, but we all know what the biodome looks like, correct? <laughs> we all know that Polly Shore was in a film called Biodome. So I think we all know what's going on. By the way, that's where comedy is moving is Polly Shore's new comedy <laughs> store. It's a biodome. So the glass dome itself would have been filled with banana and palm trees and held up by a giant central pillar with a map of the world on it. And on top of that would have been a restaurant. Uh, It didn't happen for three reasons because it's crazy because the air conditioning costs would have been astronomical and because the airlines wanted their own terminals and they didn't want to share. So what they came up with was basically what we have today, which is they turned the old main roadway of the place into a loop for heavy quote unquote easy entry and exit and have the terminals positioned along it in what some call the world's largest cul-de-sac. That's yeah. what it's shaped like now. It's a U-shaped thing and then along the skin of that U is where the terminals are. So it's not the prettiest thing, but I guess it seemed like a good idea at the time, but it did make the airport accessible to the new airplane technology. And on January 25th, 1959, the first commercial jet engine airplane landed at LAX. The official three-day opening ceremony happened in June 1961 with Vice President LBJ giving a speech on June 25th to a crowd of 100,000 people who were all just waiting to get to their check-in for the bags. (laughs) Move! Why is he still talking? So like I said, the airport was now this cul-de-sac with 172-foot control tower and then around it were seven terminals that opened up between 1961 and 62. These were terminals two through eight. So two was used for international flights, but terminal one wouldn't open up until two decades later, which we'll get to. They still kept the idea of detached satellite gates. So each terminal was connected to the gate. What's on the road are the terminals. Yeah. And then the gate is where the plane parks. Right. So they had the U-shaped road mm-hmm. and then a U-shaped terminals around it. Yeah. And then satellite detached from that 
were the gates where the planes were parked. So you'd go in the gate, you would go through underground tunnels, and then from the gate, you no longer, this was also a new thing, you no longer had to walk onto the tarmac to board a plane. Now you could go in those extendable tunnels directly from the gate. You didn't have to sully your shoes on the tarmac, that oiled tarmac. I call that the throat. You go through the gizzard of the the, the airplane. So these satellite gates were also connected with each other by separate underground tunnels. So because of this huge network of underground tunnels, LAX became one of the first airports in the world to put in moving walkways, or as they were called, astroways, to get people moving along quicker. And the first passenger to use them at LAX... Lucille Ball. Get out of She was the town. first one. Today is her death anniversary. Is it? Yeah. Huh. Well, she had a good life. <laughs> she had a good life. She got to ride on an Astro way. The first person who got to. Uh, this escalator life. sucks. <laughs> make it flat. <laughs> Man, Ricky. Ricky, make me flat. But they also wanted the tunnels to not look like the post-apocalypse world that the rest of LA looked like at the time. So they got an interior designer named Charles D. Krotka to beautify them. Although there's a lot of proof that this was actually done by a woman who worked for Pereira and Luckman named Janet Bennett. There's evidence that it was made by her and they just never gave her credit. But regardless of who did it, they put up mosaics along the long walls of seven of the tunnels that have been in lots of things like Jackie Brown and Mad Men and I think in The Graduate. Only three of these are still open to the public in Terminals 3, 4, and 6. So the most artistic thing to come out of all these renovations at this time is something we've kind of talked about before, Mm -hmm. the theme building. The big boy. It was made by a super group of Pereira and Luckman and Associates, Welton Beckett and Associates, and our old friend Paul R. Williams playing himself (laughs) in Pee Wee Herman's Big Adventure. (laughs) (laughs) Little Paulie Williams. But the design itself was made by an architect named Jin Wong. It cost $2.2 million and was completed in 1960 on the location that the giant dome that they were almost going to make was supposed to be in. And a lot of people thought it was the airport's control tower, including me as a kid. But in reality, it was just a revolving restaurant with a 360-degree observation deck on top. More importantly, it was the Googie masterpiece in a city that they know Googie. It also inspired the look of the building in the Jetsons. Uh, So it's it's sort of, it is a very influential building. Yeah, and that's one how we see the future. But even by the time all these renovations were done, they almost immediately had to do more to keep up with the demand the city was putting on it. So traffic was a major problem. They started building more parking garages and satellite lots with shuttle buses. They even redesigned the entire intersection of Sepulveda and Century just to try to improve the flow. But in the 70s, they came up with the perfect solution. LA was too crowded. Obvious solution. Build an island five miles off the coast with a full runway to lighten the load. It'll be a bigger satellite from LAX off the coast. Off the coast. So it was going to be called the Seadrome and would connect to the mainland by hydrofoils and helicopters or maybe be just connected to the 10 freeway or a subway tunnel to Marina Del Rey. But it wouldn't just have an extra airport. It would have apartments, beaches, a sports center, a convention center. Obviously, this it's plan was... It's a new town with no traffic. No one has cars. And we can keep building west. <laughs> the city doesn't have to stop at the ocean. We'll just fish to survive. Obviously, it was a huge success in the Terminal Island, but Terminal like Airport Terminal is still out there. Yeah. We all know it. So it wasn't until a full decade after that and the Olympics announcing that they were coming to town that not dumb improvements started. (laughs) First of all, they finished that Terminal 1 that I mentioned before that never got completed. But now to accommodate all international visitors coming to town for the Olympics, they made a whole new mega terminal right in the prime spot at the hardest part to get in the whole cul-de-sac. Construction began in 1981 and on June 11th, 1984, the Tom Bradley International Terminal was open for business. Named after the mayor. Named after who? 
there. <laughs> so this covered all international flights and lightened the load a little on the other eight terminals. But in terms of traffic, they also made the entire airport two stories as it now is yeah. today with a double layered road leading you in and out of the airport. So departures on the upper level, arrivals on the lower Smart. level. Obviously, the airport had to stay open while all this was going on. So for three years, traffic was driving underneath the whole other layer of airport being built on top oh of them. My. So they also added three new parking garages. These renovations also marked the end of most of the underground tunnels that ran through the place. Bummer. They added above ground connectors linking the check-in terminals to the gates, which is why it all looks like a horseshoe with piers jutting out of it now. Many were sealed off. Some are still used for storage. After 9-11, they sealed off the tunnels connecting the terminals to each other. So you'd have to go outside and then back in through security if you wanted to reach a different terminal. But in 2014, they reopened those tunnels for terminals four, five, and six. And they also used some of them for a passengers and when it gets too crowded during the busy season. So some of them are kind of still being used. It's impossible to map this place. Like I had to keep looking at different maps to try to figure out like what what year is this and what yeah, how are people I, getting that, around? Uh, but I'm really smart so it wasn't nah, so hard for me. But I have a very organized brain so it you know I mostly do calculations all day. The 90s to the late 2000s things kind of stayed the same. In 1996 they added a new 277 foot control tower and turned the old one into offices. In January 1997 the Encounter restaurant opened in the theme building with an interior designed by Walt Disney Imagineering, uh-huh. which I didn't know. It's a payback. <laughs> it was a slow death for this restaurant, though. On September 11th, they closed the observation deck until 2010. And then on February 24th, 2007, a half ton piece of stucco <sighs> fell off the building onto the roof of the restaurant, which prompted a three-year $14.3 million renovation. But in 2014, they closed the restaurant for good. Stuckle piece still there, though. <laughs> I couldn't figure out how to get it off. <laughs> LAX's newest iconic feature came in the year 2000 as the giant light pylons guiding you in and out of the main roadway. Oh, right, right. It was designed by Ted Tokyo Tanaka Architects. Love it. Ted Tokyo Tanaka toots his tin <laughs> tunier and is romantically titled untitled nice 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 boys the light effects were done by a guy named paul xanatopoulos and they're meant to remind you of ancient pillars from old greek temples old city towers stonehenge while also showcasing bright local colors so when you enter the airport they go up like a plane taking off when you're driving away they go down like a plane landing tallest one is 100 feet and in 2006 they switched to led lights Thanks. Thanks, Ted. (laughs) But again, the airport had to grow to keep up with the city. In February 2007, a $4.1 billion makeover of the airport began, which was the biggest public project in Los Angeles history. $1.6 billion of that alone went into redoing the Tom Bradley terminal. And by the time it reopened in September 2013, it had a completely new interior that was double the size and designed by the same occultists who did the Denver airport. (laughs) The shape of it is modeled after the Pacific Ocean. It has the Vieragosa Pavilion with over 60 shops and restaurants, many of them like local things, local restaurants like uh, local things like California Pizza Kitchen and Sabaro. <laughs> they added a new boarding gate for bigger, more modern airplanes. There's also the Time Tower. It's this huge pillar of LED screens that can work together to form any design or image that they want. And this is it's the biggest interactive display in the world. But the history of LAX hasn't been all air shows and traffic jams. I don't believe it. There have been actual bad things that have happened here over the years. 
was. Well, you know that I need to hear those kind of things. <laughs> they caught the Golden State Killer. <laughs> Plenty of planes have crashed into the ocean right after takeoff. There have been a few mid-air collisions on the runway and the Jeez. surrounding area. Continental Airlines had their headquarters at LAX from 1963 to 83. And during that time, the CEO of their company killed himself in his office at LAX. Okay. On August, on August 6, 1974, a bomb went off near the Pan Am counter in Terminal 2. Jeez. Three people were killed and 36 were injured. The man arrested for it was Muharrem Kerbegovic, the so-called alphabet bomber. Have you ever heard of him? I remember hearing about that, yeah. His plan was to detonate bombs around LA in locations whose first letters would spell out the name of his group, Aliens of America. The first location being A for airport. He was caught before his second bomb could go off, which was in a locker in a Greyhound bus station, L for locker. When the bomb squad diffused it, they said it was the most powerful bomb they had ever seen Wow! in a Greyhound. <laughs> station where I go to pick up my drugs. <laughs> I mean, you're so certain that people are going to be like, Locker. I L know. for Locker. Like, why not G for Greyhound? I know. It didn't make any... It, even the A for airport, I was yeah, like, well, that's... it was kind of in the terminal, if you want to get specific. Is it P for Pan Am? In 1987, a former PSA Airlines employee went onto a flight from LAX to San Francisco with a handgun in his bag. Halfway through the flight, he went into the cockpit with the gun, killed the pilots, and crashed the plane, killing all 43 people on board. Awful. On December 14th, 1999, the Millennium Bomber, Ahmed Rassam, was caught in Washington with a car filled with 100 pounds of explosive meant to go off at LAX on New Year's Eve on behalf of Al-Qaeda. Uh, Happy, Happy New, New Year. Year. <laughs> in 2002, a man who hated Israel shot up the El Al counter, killing two and injuring four before he himself was killed by Israeli security. In 2013, a guy shot his way through the TSA in Terminal 3 with an assault rifle and then got into a shootout with security. I remember that. Yeah, nobody was killed, but a lot of injuries. Also in 2013, some people set off a dry ice bomb in Terminal 2. Then in 2014, some 14 baggage handlers were arrested in Terminal 4 and the Tom Bradley Terminal for running an elaborate bag baggage theft ring that stole thousands of dollars worth of stuff from people's bags, which is, in my opinion, the greatest tragedy. Um, my shampoo! <laughs> I was planning to bring back those macadamia nuts for my grandma. <laughs> Today, LAX is run by Los Angeles World Airport, who also runs the Van Nuys Airport. It covers 3,425 acres of land. It has four runways running east to west, 25,000 parking spots, including valet parking at Terminal 4. According to them, there's 75 passenger airlines flying out of there, but I only counted 68. So mm -mm. Uh, there's that's what Dan does calculates. <laughs> I smell inaccuracies. <laughs> there's 27 cargo only airlines that fly out of there. There's now nine terminals with spots for about 140 planes at any one time. It's the base of the U.S. Coast Guard in L.A. They control oil pollution and enforce maritime law from there. The theme building now houses a USO center, which sounds suspiciously like UFO in my opinion. Yeah, that, is it full of uh, weather balloons? <laughs> Don't open those doors. <laughs> the observation deck is actually old open, which I didn't know, 8 oh, to wow. 5 on weekends for free. Since 2003, there's been an official song of LAX called LA International Airport by David Frizzell, made popular by Susan Ray in 1970. It's actually a pretty catchy song, is, yeah. if not dumb. <laughs> but, uh, how many songs do we listen to that are dumb but catchy? Since it's a base of most flights towards the east, it is referred to as the gateway to the Pacific Rim to Infinity War Gauntlet. Infinity War Gauntlet. It generates around $60 billion a year in commerce and employs about 408,000 people across all of Southern California, which means that one in all 20 jobs in Southern California are related
related to the operations of LAX. That's crazy. It, Even thinking insane. right now, I think I know three people who work at LAX. Yeah, it's well, not just there's so many people at LAX, and then people like, oh, we do this offsite for uh, LAX. Yeah, this exactly. Gets, in 2017, over 1.8 million tons of freight and mail passed through LAX, Damn. and also 84.6 million passengers, which is almost a third of the entire country. That's crazy. Which is why LAX is the fifth busiest airport in the entire world. But it's not enough. It's still not it, enough. That it, if you've ever been to LAX, you know that it's a horrific crowd at all times. Yeah. And we've got an Olympics coming in 10 years. So stuff is already in the works to try to fix these problems and trick the world into thinking we've got a smoothly running airport. In February 2017, they started a $1.6 billion makeover of the whole place. Among the updates, there's going to be a consolidated car rental facility where all of them are. A new above ground connectors between the terminals. So yeah. between these and the underground tunnels that they're still using, if you were to check in at Terminal 1, you'd be able to walk all the way around to Terminal 8 without having to go through security again which will make it easier to get to your connecting flight and also just take the tour man it's worth the price see of admission. the sites yeah <laughs> now that you know all this information boy you loaded with history Ooh, sabaro nah. the third thing they're just they're gonna bring that dome back <laughs> We like the dome idea, but we still want to have separate terminals. So we're going to put the dome on top of everything. And then to take care of the air conditioning problem, no air conditioning. <laughs> We've got it. Well, we had before, it was sort of a, like a snow globe. So it's going to be a big bowl now. We're going to turn the dome and upside down. It will be so big, though, that it will create its own atmosphere and it may <laughs> snow. As part of all this, they did this massive reshuffling of the terminals in May of 2017. It started on May 12th. And over the course of the next five days, they moved 20 airlines to different terminals. That includes office supplies, equipment, signs, furniture, airplanes, service vehicles, everything they owned while the airport was still open. Imagine getting there and while you loaded into a United flight, yeah. it changes yeah. terminals. <laughs> you oh, you're it. in the wrong place. Let's see the signs. You're on the wrong flight and no refunds also. <laughs> it's it, like you're going to Hawaii. It took a year to plan this without having to shut down the entire airport and there were over 200 volunteers directing people like where my flight's in 10 minutes where, yeah. and I'm supposed to be in this terminal. Delta alone took three days to move. This was the biggest relocation in U.S. aviation history. Oh this was our Dunkirk. I don't get that. It's British for oh, fanning. It's British for moving. So this relocation <laughs> not only gave some of the bigger airlines more space, so it won't be as crowded, it also made the distribution of the big airlines more even throughout the airport, so it's not just a huge pileup of cars dropping people off on one side of the airport. This means less flights will be delayed because now there will be fewer of the big airlines sharing the same runways I also. So the two biggest changes, however, will be an entirely new satellite terminal called the Midfield Satellite that's west of Tom Bradley. It's going to be five stories high and it'll be connected to Tom Bradley by one of those classic underground tunnels with a yeah. moving walkway. It's going to have 12 new gates that can accommodate huge new airplanes and lots of new shops and restaurants. That's going to open in 2019. The second big thing happened, I thought I was done with all my research and then this was announced. A $4.9 billion 2.25 mile long people mover connecting from the future Green Line and Crenshaw LA light rail to the airport, which are three things that don't exist yet. Yeah. It's going to run every two minutes and it'll set to open in 2023. But in uh, my opinion, it's going to be helpful for people coming to see the Olympics yeah. at the main stadiums. But th I don't. This is not going to help most no, people going to the airports. No. I, my proposal is that there's a helicopter that picks up a bus. <laughs> How about a helicopter that picks up an airplane <laughs> and drops you off? It's almost like so. We want to be a city, and we decided that we we're going to be a big city, and we keep growing, and we can't stop growing, and we keep growing, and LA yeah. stretches out. So like, well, we're a city, we need an airport. Now we have an airport that almost mimics the same thing of like, we need more yeah. and we need more. And like, it's a, it's the, it's like a, 
perfect. Yeah, it, it's it a just, microcosm, microcosm of Los Angeles. It just keeps itself. expanding and it's expanding and it's always inconvenient. Yeah, <laughs> it's expanding and for some reason I'm always late to work. <laughs> like it sounds like all the renovations are done out of like crap we just we got done just <laughs> fix this and we have to keep going like all of it sounded like putting a band-aid on a bigger problem which yeah. is too many people <laughs> which is to my next proposal the knights of the golden circle <laughs> were right this people mover thing like i thought like oh that's great yeah that's going to be really helpful but it it's the same thing when they add a lane to a freeway and they're like it's gonna move yeah. it's gonna yeah. save traffic it just makes another lane of traffic yeah. oh we're gonna but, put metro rails everywhere so there'll be less cars on the road there's just more people and the same amount of cars <laughs> like it didn't change yeah. anything the thing with the people mover is that it if say you live in sherman oaks okay. you're gonna have to somehow get someone to drop you off at the red line yeah take the red line to, to the blue to line. union station yeah transfer to yeah the blue line or something blue line will take and then the transfer line. to this new green line and then switch again to the people mover all the while carrying all of your baggage all your baggage so this is good for people coming to the olympics because it'll kind of connect you pretty easily to like where they're building those new stadiums near the relatively forum and all that easily, relatively easily, easily yeah but it's not it's it, not it, helpful the yet. thing is it's the same amount of distance and the same amount of pollution like people pollution or car pollution like it's the same amount of people like our pollution it's the same amount of stuff in my way between you and LAX like LAX is a is a given distance let's say from Union Station it's a it's the same distance you can take a car and sit in traffic and get there maybe like it save you 20 minutes but then on the rail right. rails to buses like it, it but you're gonna have to switch so many times yeah to get exactly from, even from Union Station and you're the wait to make at least two or three so changes. It, yeah, no, it's, it's not going to help. <laughs> no, it's not going to help. It's nothing's going to help. Nothing's going to help. That's why you have to buy your own airplane. Trust me. Trust me. It's the only way to fly. I guess that's another thing is I've never been to LAX and been like comfortable. Like I've never like just been relaxed at an airport before. <laughs> I've only gone like five times. I don't travel that much. But like I've never been at an airport and been like, oh yeah, I enjoy the architecture here and the lighting is really nice yeah. and I enjoy this building and the history of it. Like I'm always like, well, I'm super late again. I like seeing the theme building, but I'm never, yeah. I've never been in the Tom Bradley terminal and be like, hey. Look at that big tower. Exactly, yeah. I like to go and enjoy the theme building and either it there or do whatever, yeah. Well, hey, you're listening, LAX. Invite us for a grand tour. You know, we're just two wacky guys who like the riff and we're not annoying. <laughs> I forgot to mention something and you you reminded me you used a, a keyword and we all we do here is word association, apparently. Yeah. yeah, you triggered me. Thomas Slate, Captain Thomas Slate, who built the metal dirigible city of Glendale, inventor of dry ice. Oh, really? Yeah. He must have been the same guy that planted that bomb in 2013. He wasn't happy about the dirigible. <laughs> He lived it to be 99. This airport thinks they can get the best of me. <laughs> they, want to, they don't want to buy my dirigible. Well, you know. You know what is a dry ice bomb? <laughs> Subscribe to our podcast. Speaking of dry and the- ice cold, here's the thing. Our podcast is on iTunes and on several things. A yeah. lot of people listen to it. Uh, yeah, sure. But a lot of people know that it's a podcast. Yeah, a lot sure. of a lot of people are aware that iTunes exists. <laughs> if you haven't subscribed to our podcast, but you listen, subscribe to it because it, it gives us a better it's ranking super. in iTunes, which makes it easier for people to find us. And it also makes it easier for you because when we have bonus episodes like we did a couple this past month, they come to you automatically. So you should subscribe if you can. Also, we would appreciate it. Oh, yeah, that too. I don't appreciate anything anymore. <laughs> Least of all airports. 
<laughs> while you're there leave us a review on itunes five stars leave some words if you want it's easy you open up your podcast app on your iphone and uh it's right there you're logged in a follow we talked about it before but you can follow us on twitter at la meekly on instagram la underscore meekly like us on facebook, facebook uh, search la meekly our tumblr is our main page it's la meekly.tumblr.com we'll post pictures on there and stuff it has an archive of all of our past episodes yeah. you give to us on patreon oh that's right we, we have, have, have different things some postcards and things yeah, like that we can postcards send to out to our best fans yeah certainly uh, our favorite fans um, <laughs> you can give as much as you want or as little as you want and you've been pretty good about that what half of that you've been pretty good about <laughs> no, uh, if you have questions our email address la.meekly at gmail.com you can submit questions for our new segment we will answer them on the air if you have an idea for a field trip if you have if you work at a place or know a place that you might want to hear us go to you know we will uh, yeah we'll come interview you let yeah. us know we got another one coming up soon yay any closing words i wasn't sure if this one was going to be i mean i, li- I like aviation history and stuff and i've been interested in the airports but i wasn't sure how this one was going to turn out because in the end we're still kind of talking about planes and <laughs> a building, buildings yeah <laughs> but no i'm really happy that, that like glendale has such a, a strong history lax has such a strong history especially when you go back to the spanish well yeah i was doing all the research on lax and i was like oh this is interesting the way it grows and then i was like well it can't be much more and then i found one book and it's like the, it was the history of the land and i couldn't believe what i was that's, reading. It, that's a <laughs> gold mine right there of information that's great oh they also found gold there gold mines field you know when they said the gold rush it was actually just in south la but yeah you know go come fly with us come fly fly away go uh, go on a trip see one of these places fly to the moon bang zoom try flying out of um the glendale one see what disney does to you please take that tour it's really worth it i would i want to i was talking to our listeners but yeah oh. i guess you can too yeah. i mean i'll, I'll offered, just invite I, myself i offered for you to you know come with me and my girlfriend to the tour but you were like i don't, I don't like la I'm not interested in LA history. <laughs> That's been us. We'll see you in a month's time. You better be fit and summer bots. Yeah, it's, summer's coming. Summer's <laughs> coming. So be in a any shape you want, any whatever shape, you're comfortable in. Maybe a Q. That means you're a little round, but you've got something sticking out. And your body's got a little mustache. <laughs> I guess that's it. See you next. And month. so it goes. And that's so been goes. yet another episode of LA Meekly on brand since 2013. Oh, we're. Recording on an airplane. Did we not mention that? <laughs> oh, oh, Whoa! Oh. <laughs>